rationality AI to zombies um, was arranged differently. Yes, yeah. yes. Rationality AI to zombies was uh, edited. In a way that many feel was put together in a more readable fashion. But yes, yes. Yes, likes doing it this way. I yeah. do. I'm OG, <laughs> damn it. No, I kind of like the original. Yeah. As well, even though it is... Uh, yeah, th- I think they're both good for different reasons. No, it's true. I liked the spaghetti mess of the of my first crawl through, which was uh-huh. a lot of fun because you just you can get a deep dive and then you back up six more and you're like, oh, that's where I was. <laughs> right. um, you kind of do the whole wiki explosion thing. But I don't think I ever did it in a way where I wasn't clicking through a bunch of links. So going from one to the next will be in a, in a different way to try it. So yeah, yeah, I didn't do it in any kind of order. <clears throat> I kind of liked that, though, because it was neat when it started coming full circle. Mm-hmm. And then it felt like, oh, now you've got these nice round concepts yeah. that are starting to form. Those Snowball. first posts that you hit that, like, you see it linked to a bunch of things where you look at it and you're like, oh, I've already read all those. Yes. <laughs> well, when I first started out, we were, um, I was reading Methods of Rationality, and I didn't never heard of Less Wrong. And it's like, I'll read the sequences now. What is this? Uh, it actually turned me off for a while because there were so many uh, jargony words and just like references to things that I had no idea what they were, which wasn't even jargon. It was just things like decision theory. Like, and then when you get into timeless decision theory, it's like that is, that's, uh... that's I think that's absolutely jargon. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I guess it is. But it's I, my my exp- my exposure was I think the, the exact use case Yudkowsky was going for. Maybe we should talk about this on the show. I don't know. No, I mean uh, I'm recording right now. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll figure it out then. Yeah. yeah. My my exposure, I think, was exactly what Yudkowsky was going for when he wrote Methods of Rationality, because even in the first post on the sequences, it talks about how there's no obvious public displays of rationality like there is for like a martial artist. I don't know, kicking someone's ass or something. Mm-hmm. So if I had to guess, well, I don't know. My educated guess is that one of the many multi-purposes of Methods of Rationality was to be a public display of rationality by making a fake one in this character who could solve all these problems in a really smart looking way. Right. Oh, and then when it was on fanfiction.net, the top of the book, maybe the top of the first several chapters said, if you want to know everything Harry knows and more, go to lesswrong.com. Yeah. And I was like, I do want that. So I went there and read all this stuff. Um, and then I pushed through all the jargon and got, got past all that. So, uh, should I do the intro real quick? Yeah. Why not? Okay. Since I guess we are, we are on this. Hi. Uh, wait, no. How do I always start this? Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And I'm Jess Dickey. Hello, Jess. Hi, we Jess. have Hi. Jess back. Uh, she did the productivity part one, and we were going to do productivity part two, but then it turned out we're not doing productivity part two, but we will do other things instead. Hilariously, I didn't prepare for the productivity tools. Yes. But that's okay, because we will have you back on later, and we like really appreciate your input, too. In my defense, I just moved here. Yeah, and it's been busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Midwest. Thank you. How are you liking it? I love it. Okay. How are you liking the weather thing? Um, the weather's super weird. Um, but I kind of love it. Okay. Two seasons in a day, and all four in a week. Yeah. <laughs> That's a reference to the fact that it was like there was a snowstorm, and now it's like light jacket weather and nice and sunny again. Yeah. Yes. Bit of whiplash. We're recording on Monday night. Saturday was like drive with the windows down in a t-shirt. And then Sunday was, yeah, cold snap. Everything was cold. Lots of snowfall. Got like snowfall two and inches. three layers and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. then today, I left the house in three layers. And then it's just, you know, driving with the windows down on the way home from work again. So, yeah. The snow is gone, too, which is amazing. Because from New Jersey, uh, when it snows, it just stays and I've turns brown. that. And that sounds horrible. It is. To just have <laughs> dirty snow around everywhere for the entire season. It's snow and then they dump like sand onto it yeah. to uh i guess lubricate the roads and then they dump salt onto it 
and then it just becomes this horrifying slush that eats through metal. Oh man. Uh, not good. No, Colorado is awesome because you, you will, I'm not sure if I told you this before, but you will soon notice that whenever we get snow, it's gone from the ground in the course of three days or so. I feel like I can tolerate snow if that's the case. Yeah, you get it while it's beautiful, and then when it stops being beautiful, it goes away. This is how everything in life should be. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, we won't read too much into it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we started talking about the the less wrong posts, and so we're kind of excited to get uh, into the sequences here. And and I just decided, you know, let's let's start the recording, and we can keep going with from there. Yeah. So. In lieu of productivity, I figured we could just do, we will, I think we can do a small section in future, future episodes, but for this one, we can just do the kind of a long dive into, maybe we'll do a bit of, I don't know, meta chat about why we think this is worth something including or talking about, or if there's people who are listening and have been listening for a while and they haven't checked this stuff out yet, they should, and well, I think we'll make a case for that, so. This is our big sequences kickoff. Yay. Yay. And I also have an announcement later, and then we should also do a little bit of listener feedbacks too, so. I did have at least one feedback, so. Excellent. Okay, cool. So, yeah. So we were talking about how we first got into the sequences, and I believe both Stephen and Jess uh, found it through reading HPMOR, yeah? That's correct. Excellent. So his evil plan worked. Mwahahaha. Yeah. I mean, it, high five on that. I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Didn't, what was the spike in numbers? Was there, or there was some survey on Slate Star Codex a few years ago mm -hmm. where it was like, what, fully a third of readers came from less or came from methods of rationality? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it worked. Yeah. I, I got I got there because Trula Galef plugged it on her podcast awesome. years and years ago. I remember I was delivering pizzas at the time, and I made a note when I was driving, which I shouldn't have done. I think I was at a stoplight, hopefully, <laughs> of saying, check this out, and wrote, like, Methods of Rationality, and then got around to it, like, months later mm -hmm. that I found this little note, and yeah. I found it from, I think it was uh, Rebecca Watson from the Skeptic's Guide had actually uh, recommended it. Awesome. As like, oh, here's a fun, like, scientific-based uh, Harry Potter fanfic, and I started reading it, and I thought, like, some smart-ass college student was writing it. <laughs> and I had heard of Eliezer Yukowski separately, but it was like, I was, like, a good way into the story before I realized that he was the one writing it, and it was weird. <laughs> but I was really addicted to it. I read all of it, and then I caught up, and then I was really sad. Aww. I, uh, I actually started reading Less Wrong before there was a Less Wrong. Uh, I don't remember how I got turned on to Robin Hanson's blog, but a lot of my time during the day at work is, you know, you can't just work eight hours straight all the time. So if you're at a desk job, every now and then you take a break, you go to your favorite blog, someone links something. And at some point I got uh, linked over to Overcoming Bias, which is Robin Hanson's blog. And at the time, uh, Eliezer was co-blogging with him there. I think he was still a student of Robin's. Or if not still at the time, you know, he still had good relations with him. But he had been a student of Robbins over at GMU. A uh, student or worked with him or something. All I know is that they co-wrote Overcoming Bias or worked on it together. I didn't know that he was a formal... Was he ever enrolled? Because I, I don't think that he went to college. That's a good point. Must have been like protege in some other way. But he... Uh, Overcoming Bias is Robin Hansen's like blog. Right. And uh, Eliezer and actually a few other people co-blogged with him for a while. But Eliezer started there. And the first, I don't know, like year or so of less wrong posts were actually posted on overcomingbias.com uh, which is like important context because whenever uh, in the beginning he will talk a few times about overcoming biases and what is a bias and all that and the context of that is he's literally posting on a blog called overcomingbias.com uh, so he's co-hosting uh, co co with Robin and uh, even though the sequence the very first post is the beginning of his sequences 
there's this uh, this history where they have been talking on the blog already for a while, uh, various readers and other co-bloggers. So he references some conversation that's been going on, and that's because this, you know, it just sort of started up in the middle of a uh, of talk about biases and rationality in general. Yeah, that explains why it seems like there's prerequisite reading. Um, I don't think that's the wrong word. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're starting in the middle of things, not the beginning of a book. Yeah. Because you know, even in the first uh essay which maybe some many of the links i think write it after but going back to find them and even at the time i'm assuming it links to overcoming bias articles mm-hmm. so it's certainly not like it doesn't doesn't open like the first page in a book right yeah uh so we are going to be reading the actual original sequences as they posted instead of rationality ai to zombies just because i don't know that's how i read it and i i like it better that way um but rationality ai to zombies is probably the way to go for most people and there are now two separate podcasts of uh the rationality ai to zombies in case people want to follow along with that we will link to both of them and also i don't think we mentioned explicitly what that is so rationality ai to zombies came out like two years ago less something like that and it's it's a recomposite of the original sequences it left some it cut some stuff out it more importantly reorganized things into like six or something chunks mm-hmm. that are more sensible than kind of just like the more like self-contained yeah and also and, kind of stream of consciousness exactly yeah then the, then the stream of consciousness that kind of afterwards you can demark where things happened and that sort of thing so yeah i think that's the main reason i like the blog posts because they are very much a stream of consciousness and you get to see both eliezer's personality and humor and it feels very much more like having a conversation with someone or or seeing their you know seeing them be them. Whereas the rationality AI to zombies is much more about trying to put forth this rationality thing and and present it to people in a acceptable way, which is good, but also, you know, less what I like, I guess. Yeah. I don't need to read a persuasive article about why I should be a rationalist. <laughs> right. You're um, already there. I was, yeah, I was going to say what you said, that it feels like you're having a conversation with the, with the writer. The other thing about it too, is that if I remember correctly, didn't he write the bulk of them writing a post a day for two years yes yeah so it it very much is like a i'm already thinking of the next thing while i'm writing this one <clears throat> and yeah. not you know once a week or two or something where it has an a long editing process and that sort of thing so right well his his goal was to write basically um rationality ai to zombies uh but he i mean he didn't have that name for it yet but he wanted to write this book and he couldn't sit down and write down all 800 pages in a go but he's like the way i'm motivating motivating myself is just to write one post a day every day and you know getting that little dopamine hit at the end of every day when people see it and comment on it and talk about it and upvote it and stuff and it worked out extremely well because he got through all i don't know 12,000 pages or whatever in in pretty quick time yeah let's jump into it that sounds good okay the first post is called The Martial Art of Rationality. And this is basically talking about what he wants to do, how he wants to create a art of rationality that will help people think. It's kind of like an introductory post, except unlike most introductions, which are really boring and you just want to skip them, this one's actually interesting. Yeah, I think in addition to being interesting, I I feel like this is probably a decent litmus, litmus test for anyone who like wants to try these out. Or if you're sharing them with somebody, you know, if you're going to try to force the sequences on a friend, I might show them this one first. A, because it seems like here's what we're going to be covering over the next, you know, like you said, 100 posts or 1,000 posts or pages, however long you said it was. But it's it's also 
written in the same kind of conversational style. It's not like I'm writing an essay and you can find it if you want. It's very much like a, a one-sided dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it has the familiar, well, familiar if you've read it before, but the same flavor as the whole rest of the, the sequences. Yeah, it sounds like him. It has his voice already. Right. And it's got some of the kind of jargon and it just... If you're not interested in what kind of things we're going to talk about here, then you're like, okay, this isn't for me. But if you are, then you're like, oh, shit, and there's so much more to go, and then you get to dive into it. So Yeah, this has a lot of links now that I think weren't there originally. Yeah, uh, the uh, apparently they were, someone did go through and uh, link a lot of things that were not linked originally, because there's links to the Less Wrong wiki uh, here, and there was no lesswrong.com at all at the time. So there's there's a bunch of things linked here that weren't linked originally. So this is more beginner-friendly now? Yeah. A little bit. I, but also, I mean, one of the nice things about when I first was reading this was that, you know, the first posts didn't have any links at all, you know? <laughs> and there's nothing more beginner-friendly than just being able to read through a thing without uh, having to click through, I guess. Oh, I like being able to... I mean, I'm addicted to Wikipedia, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's an option, yeah. right? So if you want to just read it, you can. But if you want to dive into some of the, the linkable things, then you can say, okay, what was this talking about? Right. And then, boom, you get, you get an explanation, so... Yeah, something I wish that they would incorporate into... This is uh, Wikipedia has that feature where you hover over something now and it gives you like the one paragraph explanation. Mm. That would be great to have in the future. That would be handy. Web developers. iPhones try to do that with like the or the newer ones with the push touch, like the three D the three touching. A yeah, it's not the ubiquitous technology, but also it's kind of annoying. I'm, I guess I'm new <laughs> to having one, but if you don't push hard enough the whole time, then it just thinks you clicked it and opens the page. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't do a preview. It does a full look. It does like a little, a little page inside the page that shows what you're about to look at. So that does seem annoying. Yeah. I'm talking about just mousing over something and then moving the cursor away. If you don't want to oh, read be great. it anymore. Yeah. I, one of the things I really dislike using the web on the phone because you can't hover over things with the mouse and just, the mouse is such a much better tool than these fat, dumb fingers that only have one button. Well, hopefully Elon Musk will have our neural interface, and then we'll just be able to look at it <laughs> and blink or something. I don't know. Yeah. We'll find out. Not even blink, just kind of think. Yeah, I want to use. I want to hit that link, that one. One of the first quotes that I'm going to pull out of this is him explaining that this is what he wants to do is different from like a specialized education that people get. Uh, he compares it to a martial art, saying, A martial art just trains your muscles. If you have the human universal complex machinery of a hand with tendons and muscles in the appropriate places, then you can learn to make a fist. If you have a brain with cortical and subcortical areas in the appropriate places, you might be able to learn to use it properly. It's about training brain machinery we all have in common. Which I thought was a really cool way to look at this. It's not, you know, about learning specific facts and stuff. It's about learning how to use this machinery that we all have. One thing that the sequences does over and over is emphasize that the brain, yes, while complicated and not 100% fully understood, is not this opaque, impossibly Im- impossible to penetrate black box of mystery, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, there's, there's all these parts. They're all the same parts in every head in the, on, uh, of every human on Earth, more or less. There's, there's less mystery there than I think is, general, or is generally appreciated. Analogous to your fist-making skills, you have all the right brain parts for this to work for you, too. Right. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a bad way to make a fist and try to hurt someone with your hand, and there's a much more effective way to do it. Just like there's bad ways to use your brains, and there's much more effective ways to use them. What's the, you know, so if you make a fist wrong and punch a board, you'll break your hand. Right. What's the what's the analog for that if you're using your brain? Uh, you start believing crazy things. And or I try guess... to, like, apply everything to one model. Or that, yeah. There's a lot of ways. 
All right. I, I just thought I'm, I'm thinking of like specifically like the explosive way, but yeah, maybe that's it is you the, the, the bad way to really bad way to use your brain. That's analogous to breaking your fist is like thinking up really clever justifications for your weird religion or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were talking about uh, the fact that we do know some things about the brain, I like that he specifically mentions uh, that we have heuristics and biases, programs and ad- experimental psychology, Bayesian systemization of probability theory, evolutionary psychology, statistics and social psychology, where there is a good deal of work done. So you can start to think about how you think. Yeah, well, bu- building on that, there was um, the like tradition of introspection is thousands of years old, at least, right? Since people have been around and having free time, they've been thinking about themselves and how they think. But it's in the last couple of centuries, mostly in the last century, that we've got a lot of really good tools to do that in a way that's effective and well calibrated and the systematized way of thinking and exploring that is the scientific method is fairly new as well right yes i mean just the idea that you can ask a question test it and ask better questions afterwards is not something that we've been doing since we've been thinking right yeah um or since the dawn of thought right uh yeah there's this quote near the end where it's the inner eye is not sightless but it sees blurrily with systematic distortions we need, then, to apply the science to our intuitions, to use the abstract knowledge to correct our mental movements and augment our metacognitive skills. Yeah. Um, that's basically making the point that I clumsily made earlier, which is that we can use all the things that Jess was mentioning that were in the post that uh, it's it, we, we can do better than just think about our thinking. We can actually get better at it. Mm-hmm. And we have the long list of tools of here's all the things that we can, once we learn all of these and learn how to apply them properly, there we go. You can start thinking better. And he does mention that it's not, it's not something that's just automatically easy. There's, I mean, there's a reason that he calls it an, an art. Some of the machinery is optimized by the machinery means like the human universal machinery of our brains. Some of the machinery is optimized for evolutionary selection pressures that run directly counter to our declared goals in using it. Deliberately, we decide that we want to seek only the truth, but our brains have hardwired support for rationalizing falsehoods. We can try to compensate for what we choose to regard as flaws in the machinery, but we can't actually rewire the neural circuitry. So you're going to be fighting against yourself a bit as well to do this. There's some good examples of the brain being wired to do things that you expressly think it's not wired to, or you expressly say and probably believe it's not wired to do in Robin Hanson's book that we talked about, The Elephant in the Brain, Yeah, where you think you're being honest or you're you're donating to charity or something for the for all the reasons that you think you're doing it and telling people that you're doing it because it's nice and it's helpful, but really... There's a large signaling aspect to that, too. So the press secretary is the the metaphor that Hanson uses to talk about um, your conscious self. Yeah, basically your conscious self, the voice that gives reasons of, of your behavior to other people and to yourself. Yeah. It's like, why did I just do that? And you don't think of this base thing or you know, you might not even it's not even like you're you see it and shirk away from it because it's not nice. Yeah, it's you just don't the, see it at all. Exactly. That's the whole thing. You, you just, you don't see it. So when it's not until you're called upon to justify your behavior to yourself or to someone else, they even consult your press secretary. Mm-hmm. And your press secretary says, oh, you did it because uh, you thought it would be nice. And, you know, that's good enough. Do you read uh, Slate Star Codex? Uh, yeah, a bit. Oh, Jess? Um, I read all of it. Okay. So uh, you're familiar with uh, when he was, uh, Scott was exploring recently about this general idea that movement may be the, the brain wanting to be in a certain position. And oh, yeah. then, yeah, the body like just fulfilling that want. I expect for my hand to be here. And so, and you expect it hard enough and your body's like, okay, there it is. That was the predictive processing yeah. model. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was interesting. He also recently said, you know what? 
I've been kind of confused about this, so I just started trying to think about uh, movement as literally just me wanting something and my body fulfilling my desires. And it is shocking how how applicable this is. Like he said, I'll think about like when I'm eating, just like I want that burrito be in my mouth and I'm not even paying attention, but all of a sudden it's in my mouth and I'm swallowing <laughs> it. And that's that's kind of awesome how that happens. And he's like, it's really put in perspective how much I'm just kind of the CEO being like, mm, I decide I want this to happen. And then all the automatic processes make it happen without me really being a part of it. And I think that whole El- rider of the elephant thing does the same kind of, it's the same kind of thing, right? You're just, you're doing your thing. You want this to happen and you aren't really paying attention to the actual deeper motivations and mechanics yeah, that go on. so many sub steps involved in like very basic, uh, like, well, it's not very basic, but for, I was going to use the example of driving a car, mm-hmm. but I was driving over to your house and it's, you get on autopilot a lot of the time. I found myself thinking about uh, what I was going to say on this podcast and suddenly I realized I'm like, oh, I just lost 10 minutes. Yeah. And I wasn't just like, it's not like I've driven here many times. I was using Google Maps, looking at a map and looking at like, you know, my surroundings, trying to figure out which road was which, but it was all just in the background. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy. I mean, you're operating a big piece of machinery at really high speeds too, but you just don't even like, oh, this is no big deal. (laughs) It's interesting. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot that goes on there. I was just thinking of the example of like crossing the room to go get something that it's not until you like observe a toddler learning to walk or like are super drunk that you realize how many things are involved <laughs> in getting like your feet under you, keeping your balance and getting, you know, one foot after the other, lifting your knees, bending your ankles, all that stuff. All that happens subconsciously, mm-hmm. you know, there's, we'd, we'd burn a lot of fuel making all those decisions, making every movement decision. Right. Um, but yeah, the driving example is interesting because I remember, thinking about this, like, I, I remember learning to drive. It seemed like there was so much to do. And now I sit there and there's, I can do it with literally one hand and one knee, right? Like, there's nothing to, I mean, I shouldn't, but I can. <laughs> and there, there's so little involved now, but it's it's overwhelming at first. It's just a kind of funny thing to look back on. I remember teaching my cousin to drive a few years ago, you know, just telling her, I was like, you know, it looks like a lot. This is going to be like nothing in, you know, a few months. You're going to wonder why there, this seems so overwhelming. There's like three things you're doing here. You know, stay in the lines. This is, you know, get familiar with how much weight to put on the pedal, and here's how the here's how to move the car with the wheel. Like, yeah, and learn all the unofficial rules of the road. Yeah, those come which later. Which you also learn but, by experience. Yeah, I remember teaching someone how to ski and having a really hard time verbalizing what to do. I had to stop and ski myself for a little bit and really pay attention to what I was doing. I'm like, oh, okay, you kind of lift this foot and shift your weight like this, and then, you know, telling them to do that. That's so many things. That's why it's hard to teach. Uh, I tried to teach a digital art class for little kids, Mm -hmm. and I realized really quickly that you have to break everything down into very, very, very tiny pieces. And I didn't think of that. I I kind of immediately thought, I'll teach them how to do a line art, and then I'll teach them how to put a layer under that and put color on it, and that'll be really easy. And then I (laughs) actually tried to trial the class and realized that even like very, very simple, like use of the tools and like launching the program oh. <laughs> was taking the majority of the class. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's the inferential distances issue. Yeah, the which is another post that we will come that's, to at some yeah. point. Yeah. I'm just thinking of a similar example. It was like teaching a child to use a computer program, but I was trying to explain to, explain to my mom over the phone how to drag a file from her computer <laughs> to a flash drive. Mm and she lives 70 miles away and she's like next time you, you come by you can do it and i was like i'm really confident you can get this here's google directions you know how to read it click and read the google directions like you you can do this but there's so much ground to cover with somebody who doesn't 
know what they're doing that it it's easy to forget all the steps involved do you hear about the the genius of microsoft's early windows games no because it shipped with three games minesweeper uh solitaire and i don't remember what the other one was oh yeah solitaire taught like click and drag yeah um, I, I never thought yeah. at that a time but there was a reason for this yeah no one knew how to really click and drag no one had used mice before and solitaire just like click here drag here and you know you learn the skill really quickly through a game minesweeper teaches you how to do precision pointing with the mouse in those very little tiny squares you know i was like that's really neat yeah i remember reading something about that and that was a really cool idea because yeah i mean you got to think in the dawn of pcs i remember in another example of, you know love your mom but you're tech illiterate um <laughs> showing how to use her tv that she, they bought a couple years ago and it's a smart tv with a remote that you can click down to apps and stuff and I had to think of how I'm, how I'm going to explain to her, you know, like it 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 has a little hovering halo around whatever app is selected, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, so that's where the control is. The direction that you want it to go in is the direction you press on the map on on the the controller. Mm -hmm. But it took me a second to think of how to phrase that. It's like telling somebody how to play a video game who doesn't play video games or like who does only uses mouse and keyboard and they're using a controller and you're trying to remember without touching the remote which one moves the camera which one moves the the legs right and i honestly can't quite remember even though i play games most days now yeah it's almost always the left joystick that moves the character and the right one that moves the camera yeah that checks out but in my you know in in the moment where you're trying to show somebody it's mm -hmm. easy to forget mm -hmm. yeah like uh hotkeys are terrible I use so many hotkeys, but when people go, wow, how did you do that? I have to go over to a keyboard and place my fingers. I'm like, okay, it's these keys. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> they're these ones. And and we are we have that a lot with the phrase inferential distances, right? That That is something we just have our, in our brains, but we haven't gotten to that post yet. That came from a less wrong sequence post. Hopefully this will help people get on the same page with all these mental tools. Yeah. Just bringing it back. No, I, I agree. And I, it's one of those things that I, I, I wonder, I, I often, I go back and forth on whether or not this should be like requisite reading for the local group. Mm -hmm. And part of me thinks it should be because there's a lot of, of grounds to cover to have, you know, again, if you, yeah, have, to, if you have to teach everyone how to use a computer before you can learn to do, you know, computer des or graphic design or, or something, you're wasting, you're not wasting, but you're spending so much time getting them caught up, right? But you don't have to like read these whole things you know, in order, you, a lot of it just gets picked up mm -hmm. through through cultural osmosis. Like, I'm sure a lot of people in our group, I know several people have never read the sequences, but they know what inferential distance means. Totally. It's like you can be a Christian your entire life, have never opened the Bible, but you know all about the Jesus story, you know, and, and Moses, and just you pick up things from from what you your people talk about. I think your mind went there because of your upbringing, not because this is your replacement Bible, right? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Literally because there's a lot of things people know that are supposedly from this collection of words, but they've never read the words. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm sorry, just really quick. I was going to say that's why I'm a big fan of defining jargon that comes up. And I've been trying, we've tried to do throughout the whole show, which is, you know, anytime we drop a new lingo, we I try to define it. So that way they're caught up without having to go dig it out of the wiki. Yeah. yeah thanks for doing that, by the way. Yay. Oh, cool. I was going to say that's also a good reason to actually make it required reading because uh, in my experience was that I never actually read the Bible until college, even ah. though I was raised Christian. And you they, were shocked at what you found? They read it in church and I like, you know, would zone out because I was a little kid mm -hmm. and I had a children's Bible my mom would read me that had completely like wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> interpretations of a lot of these stories. And they don't read the whole thing in church usually. 
Yeah, they, they read pieces. Some quotes. Yeah. And then they talk about, well, th- this relates to this, you know, current event in this really forced way. Right. But when I read the entire Bible cover to cover, I realized that um, I was missing a lot of the context. A lot of it was really terrifying. But uh, it, that was an enlightening experience because I became an atheist because of it. Oh, cool. I believe... Oh, God. I'm going to say Mark Twain because this is where I heard it. But a lot of quotes get attributed to people who didn't actually say them because they're more famous. But I think it was Mark Twain who said that uh, one of the best arguments for atheism is just reading the Bible. Yep. Can confirm. Uh, Before we move on to the next post, I did want to say that when I reread this, because I hadn't read this or really most of the sequences since the first time I'd read them, aside from a few that I really like and reread sometimes. Uh, but when I reread this, I saw that he explicitly referenced uh, the lens that sees its own flaws, which is a post that is comes up later. I don't even know how much later. But he talks about a flawed lens that can see the flaws in itself, which, you know, normally you can't when you have a lens. But as humans, we have the ability to turn our thinking in on itself to examine it. And I was like, oh, shit. He called forward to a post that he hasn't written yet and won't write for months. But just the fact that it's a call forward in there is like he he's apparently thought quite a bit about what he's going to say. It's pretty cool. I noticed that too. I didn't realize that that was a future post, but now that you've mentioned that, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the lens that can see itself. And like you said, it makes the same. I think that's the whole point of it. Yeah. Um, but it's just a kind of longer version of this. Yeah. Um. Before you move on, uh, this is, you know, the martial art of rationality. And the structure of the post uh, talks about... Well, it directly compares uh, the art of rationality to like Taekwondo, for mm-hmm. example. I really love that. And I think uh, I might be mistaken. I think there are uh, rationality dojos that either like someone tried to implement or that do exist. I've heard now. of them. But they weren't around like 12 years ago no. when this was written. Yeah. I'm sure it was like inspired by this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think CFAR is kind of like that. That sounds like a good case or a good real world example. Um, yeah, but that's like a short intensive training period. It's not like... Somewhere you could go every week. Yeah. I know that, um, was it the Ohio group that had a rationality dojo thing for a while? Yeah, and there's a, um, Shelly here was trying to get those going for a little while, and I think to two or three, and it didn't quite take off. Yeah. Well, the problem is that someone needs to run it, and it's a lot of work, yeah. and no one else was really willing to do that work. Yeah, I think that's it, and yeah, it doesn't, doesn't pay very well, except you get, you know, a couple <laughs> high fives. and Community organizing is really hard. Yeah. I think we'll hit over and over throughout the whole sequences the analogy to martial arts, which I really like too. That this this first post, like I said, points out that it's hard to have a public display of awesome rationality skills the same way that you could see a martial artist. You know, I remember when I went, did, went to like a McDojo as a kid. There was one of the senseis could do a jump kick and hit a basketball hoop mm-hmm. uh, net. Mm-hmm. So like that's a demonstration of look at how good I am at martial arts or whatever somebody wants to do. Uh, just, I guess, the idea that this isn't a thing that you can read about and then have. Yeah. Um, like you can gain a piece of knowledge. Right, right. The, these these are skills that need practice, that you can get better at, right. that there are, there are degrees of skill, right? And that the more they become unconscious habits, the better they usually are. Like if you can routinely find yourself, you know, assigning probabilities to beliefs rather than just I believe this or I don't believe this. And thinking of things as probability distributions of, of how right of, about something you think you are, that makes a big difference if you can do that automatically. I think I once made the point that uh, in The Matrix, as we were talking about just before the microphones went on, when Neo has the Kung Fu program downloaded into his brain and he says, I know Kung Fu 
the reason he's so amazed isn't because like now he knows how to you know make a fist and and swing his arm it's because now he has these instincts that when someone throws a punch at him his body just knows what to do when he wants to hurt someone his body just does the thing you know that's what you want when you master a physical martial art like that that you you just have this desire and your body does it you don't have to think about it like uh, like when you're playing rock band or something you know or any instrument even you don't want to think i'm hitting g key art i'm hitting e i'm hitting uh f sharp you just want to have that desire and your body goes through with it and the 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 reason i think that the martial art of rationality is called that is because you also want to inculcate that sort of almost muscle memory reflex in your brain where you just do it the right way i i have those and i, I like noticing when those bells go off in my head mm. yeah uh, me too not not for everything i wish that obviously they were louder and more salient and all that but there are probably other examples like that you know like good body mechanics you know if you notice you're slouching or something you know you often don't notice until you're uncomfortable but if you can train yourself to like check in every few seconds or a few minutes or something you be like oh i'm slouching my shoulders let me I get, like that there's tools for that now. Posture, like, for example, they have those, like, posture braces that you can wear. Or they have an app, or not an app, it was a wearable that would alert you. I think it vibrated when you were slouching. Huh. It would be cool if we could have those oh, for our brains. I saw one of those, that, like, was on your lower back or something. I definitely saw something that would alert you know, alert you about your posture that was, like, an adhesive that connected to a computer that would vibrate a patch of muscle or something. That's probably the thing I'm thinking of. I don't remember what it was called. If I could probably find it, we could link it. But uh, I'm just a big wearable nerd. But I keep, you know, I really want there to be ones for your brain. There's tried to be a few of them, and uh, they're so-so. We should do an episode on wearables. That sounds fun. Yeah. Or like a technology that can assist with rationality. Yeah. Well, and since I got LASIK, I'm I'm not wearing literally anything that helps me do anything. So I mean, other than clothes to keep me from shivering. But right. Um, you have your phone on you. I'm not wearing it though. It's over here. Well, LAS- oh. LASIK itself is awesome though. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, now I'm wearing now I'm wearing glasses all the time. Let's see. I think oh, there's another similar to training my physical habits from martial arts or mental habits from rationality. It's sort of an introspection habit through like mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get enough practice at it, you kind of just learn to notice the swaying and and tone of your thoughts. Before I got more into this, I could come home you know after a day or something, and someone could point out be like, oh, it looks like you had a rough day. And it's at that minute that I realized I had a rough day because hmm. uh, it's it was showing on my face, but it wasn't I wasn't looking at it myself. Yeah. And having the tricks to look in to see to introspect in that in that other direction, not just on your cognitive processes, but your your thinking and feeling, it kind of helps me keep all those in check. I don't really have extreme days anymore because if I'm having a rough day, I can look in and be and notice. Oh, you're having a rough day. That's why this is being super. You know, that's why this thing that doesn't usually annoy you is annoying you or something. And you can. Uh stage an intervention yeah totally and it i think it it can be pretty effective um so other this is tried and true with other disciplines is what i'm saying too yeah and i'm, I'm trying to name, i'm trying to name several in case somebody has tried meditation or you know uh, martial arts or body posture or something and they're like oh you know you can't I, i'm trying to draw analogies to as many things as possible mm-hmm. yeah there are um some similar practices like cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. all that being said before we finally move on to the next post i don't think that reading the sequences will make you a rationalist master. I think it'll just lay out the groundwork, much like seeing someone do Kung Fu and learning the theory behind it will show you what it is and get you set in the right direction, but you actually have to do it over and over to practice it. Like this is just reading the sequences is the first step, I guess. 
last example, yeah. uh, and this is more specific. Uh, Drake has been picking up juggling the last few months. Mm-hmm. Juggling oh, is awesome. super fucking hard. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and from it's like watching you know jackie chan do do kung fu on tv and it's like oh yeah i could do that it's just moving your arms and it's like it's yes it's just moving your arms but there's a lot more to it than that and you know the one like the cartoon example of juggling where you're doing a circle Mm -hmm. is like one of the hardest things there's so much coordination there it's easier to do the kind of cross thing um but i'm I'm assuming ask ask drake because he knows more about juggling than i do but my understanding is that doing the circle is way harder than it looks and it or it's way harder than it looks but it's it's it looks super easy. It's just a couple of hand motions, right? How hard can it be? But it turns out to be very difficult. So, Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, art of mastering something is the art of making it look easy. Mm-hmm. I know uh, at some circus artists, and they always looked like, you know, they'd do a flip. <laughs> they'd be juggling. They'd be eating fire, and they're smiling, and they have these, like, flowing, nice, graceful movements. But actually, like, I've done um, some fire arts, and it's really uh, hard not to flinch or to look at the fire while you're doing it. I'm, I'm same thing with juggling. I've tried to pick that up before, and if you can see someone very like naturally, you know, juggling, smiling, looking at you, not looking at what they're doing, <laughs> that actually means that they're very skilled at it. I just had the realization that I think you're right that mastery over something is making it look easy. And I'm trying to think of counterexamples, and there really aren't any that I, that are coming to mind. I'm sure with five minutes we could probably think of some, but it's a really good way to think about it. That if it looks really easy, it's only because I'm really, really good at it. <laughs> and so you look at this and you see how nonchalantly I'm doing this thing, you think you could pick it up really easily, right? Yeah. Okay. Part of what makes it really hard to communicate that something is difficult. Mm-hmm. Like for example, drawing. Oh my God. Yeah, the, I can't draw either. Yeah, well I, I have a few illustrator friends now and they say the amount of time that they hear someone say Look, can't you just draw me the thing? It's really easy. It'll only take you like 10 minutes. You're like, first of all, it takes longer than that. Second of all, it took me eight years of practice to get to the point where I could do this. You think it's so easy, you go do it. <laughs> yeah, as a freelance graphics designer, it's hard to explain to a client that you should pay me more because I can do this in less time because it took me longer to learn how to do this in less time. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember hearing about a, uh, a, a locksmith guy. Who's like when he would show up and you know someone's paying him sixty, eighty dollars to come in and unlock their thing. He shows up. He's been doing this for twenty years. Does click, click, click. Okay, you're open. And they would be like really kind of peeved, and they're like, "You don't really need eighty dollars for that, do you?" He says nowadays, lots of times, if he has you know an extra five minutes, he'll sit there and he'll like <laughs> just do it. And he's like, "Oh man, this is a tough one," and just fuck around for a while before he undoes it. And then they're always so grateful. I should do that. <laughs> I don't know it's, how I could do that with graphics design. I just make like, it take longer. You're like, I'm like, sorry, I might miss this deadline, man. Bring this is my really laptop. Yeah. <laughs> bring lots of like useless gadgets, line them all up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, don't do it in front of someone. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to be doing art in front of someone. Then they'd be over your shoulder. Yeah. Like, oh, can you make it a slightly bluer green? No, not that much. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think I like that one. Go back to the yellow. Wait, let me see them side by side. Hmm. The only thing I could think of to do it that wouldn't involve a lot of like just straight up lying about like how long something took you to do or something would be to just use tons of jargon and like name drop all the complicated tools and stuff that you can think of. Um, so they'd be like, Oh, can, yeah, like you said, can I get this different color? Well, you know, according to this, you know, send back, I don't know, like 60 hex codes, you know, for the colors or something yeah. just to fuck with them or <laughs> I have done um, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, yes, yeah, I'm going to pick the best one out of those. And you can't even, you can't even see what those means. So that's fun to think about. It's fun to do. Why truth? Yeah, sure. Oh. Why truth, Inyash? <laughs> Why Answer truth? It. That, that's actually the question of, of this post. 
there are three potential reasons he gave why seeking why to seek truth, uh, which is a thing that I think we generally do as rationalists. Uh, the first reason was to satisfy curiosity. Lots of times you just want to know the truth because you're curious, which I'm a big fan of personally. And I didn't I didn't write down the pros and cons of that one, unfortunately. But uh, I think one of the, the obvious cons that he mentioned is that sometimes you're just not curious. You'll only pursue it so far until it gets tedious or uh, maybe it gets too hard at some point And you're like, well, I'm not that curious about the truth here. And I don't remember if this is something that he brings up in this post or if he brings up at all or if I thought of. But curiosity to me is like an emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can drive other emotions, like it get you exhilarated or something like that. But that, that feeling of like, huh, that, that has a distinct feeling for me. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I enjoy. So I think curiosity for its own sake or truth for its own sake, I think, is a valid response to so- somebody might ask, you know, why bother? Yeah. Um, it's a valid response. I don't know if it's sufficient, but it's a, it's definitely a good component to a good to a ra- well-rounded answer. I like curiosity. Curiosity to me is like almost feels like sexuality or sexual desire. You know, it's just something you want to do because you have an innate want for it, and it can get like uncontrollably you know high too. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, no, I mean that that can be a thing. There's this driving. It's maybe that feeling of like when you lose your car keys mm. and it's it's almost like curiosity I've, but it's like I've, that turn it's like that tuned up there's maybe a little more agitation built into it but the longer you're looking for them the more intense the feeling right and you're and then it's like I an guess, itch yeah i sometimes think of curiosity as an itch as well it's just like something you really got to just mm. and then when it stops mm-hmm. then it's like ah oh, that felt yeah, great I, I fucking love having google in my pocket all the time now because i can't even kind of put a number on how many times a day i'll like oh what's that bird Hey, I'll Google it. Mm. Isn't that now great? I know what that bird is. <laughs> and nobody in our past has ever been able to do that. It's crazy. And Eliezer wrote an essay at one point about the, I think it was 12 virtues of rationality. Yeah, and I think curiosity was the number, the first one, right? Curiosity is the first one. Yeah. We should maybe have done the 12 virtues. Maybe we'll pull them up for this episode too. Um, yeah, he says first virtue was curiosity in the essay. Okay. Also, um... You were saying uh, about emotions. What he actually says was, uh, some people, I suspect, may object that curiosity is an emotion and therefore not rational. But he labels an emotion as not rational if it le- rests on mistaken beliefs rather than on irrational epistemic conduct. I, I liked trying to explain that difference to somebody I used to know that if you tell them, if you, if you say you shouldn't be feeling that way, that sounds like you're challenging their feelings. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's not so much... I'm not challenging your feelings. I'm challenging the beliefs that your feelings are based on. When you realize those beliefs are false, your feelings should go away. But with somebody who doesn't speak that language, it just comes off as super annoying. Ah. Um, That's a common problem with uh, people that are like systemizers versus empathizers. Where, for example, uh, they feel like you're invalidating their feelings. And it's like, I'm not trying to tell you that you're not having that feeling. I've gotten better at it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, I know I know what I you mean. <laughs> I'm working on that right now. I've mostly run into people who who say things like, "Well, you're a rationalist, so you think no one should have emotions, right?" And I mean, the, the it, it, to to continue the quote where that you were writing, yeah. he he says, "If the iron approaches your face and you believe it is hot and it is cool, the way opposes your fear. If the iron approaches your face and you believe it is cool and it is hot, the way opposes your calm." And Spock's emotional state is always set to calm, even when it's wildly inappropriate. The emotions, when they accurately reflect reality, are rational things. Like, if, if the iron approaching your face is hot, you do want to panic. That is the rational thing to feel at that point. I like that he specifically wrote that 
This has the advantage of letting us regard calm as an emotional state rather than a privileged default. And as a person who has chronic anxiety, I can agree with that. Yeah. That is a privileged state. And it would be bad if we were just calm all the time. Anxiety does have a place. There's a lot of things to not be calm about. Mm Mm-hmm. Like uh, ex-threats. Yeah. Existential threats, which are the uh, threats that could wipe out humanity. All of our dooms. (laughs) So I want to dive into that a little bit because I think calm, how would Spock shouting and waving his arms aboard the the Enterprise help anything? Well, it might not aboard the Enterprise, but there are times where it's a really bad idea to do something and he does not act like it's a bad idea. Well, also Spock, uh, like no realistic person acts the way Spock does. Spock was able to still prioritize something as being highly important and, but like maintain calm. But the way humans work is that we experience anxiety and stress in response to predators chasing you um, or social conflicts that are coming up. So you can't really just divorce the emotion from the response because we don't work that way. It would be lovely if we did. No, totally. And to be clear, I haven't seen a single episode of Star Trek, so I'm probably missing something. But um, well, I, th- I doubt I doubt if Spock was being chased by some space line, he would stand there calmly. He would calmly run away, right? <laughs> I... The original series was not a very good series, I thought. There was one or two good episodes, but I I haven't seen all that many of them either because I just didn't like it. And Spock was a lot of fun because he was so inhuman and weird, right? I think that was his whole point. Yeah. And I think I mentioned Julia Galef earlier. I think she coined the phrase Straw Vulcan. Right. Um, which is what people think of when they think rationalist if they're not familiar. I think that's gotten, well, maybe I think as my Spock... social circle's gotten more rationalist in the last several years, but I feel like that's less of a trope now than it used to be. But maybe it's still the same. I don't know. It might just be the bubble that you're in. It's yeah. probably definitely the bubble now that I think about it. And Spock was totally a straw Vulcan in that show. There was, there was, I don't remember what episode it was, but like some natives were really upset and they were throwing spears at this uh, shuttle that they were in. He's like, it is entirely illogical for them to be throwing spears at us. And McCoy's like, you're a fucking idiot, Spock. And yeah, Spock was being a fucking idiot at that point wasn't he so i guess i'm assuming by logical i'm guessing that the spears couldn't penetrate their shields or something i think that's what it was so i don't remember but he's making a completely pointless observation which is it's it's yeah so let's throw out his his bad use of the word illogical and just he could say they're wasting their time and that's true Mm -hmm. but it's kind of again him he's wasting his time saying that but he doesn't understand why they're doing it oh which is a failure on his part yeah totally they're mad and that that is their motivation, you know. So yeah, they he, had a he good just reason to get... throw spears. Yeah, exactly. Well, they had a good reason to be mad. They didn't have a good reason to throw spears because they actually wanted to hurt them. I'm guessing, right? I so believe so. Yeah. What they should have done is, I don't know, found some big rocks to push off a cliff onto the ship or something, right? Right. But he but... was he was implying that since there it is impossible for them to hurt the ship, they shouldn't be even feeling anger right now. It is an illogical emotion. Okay. Yeah, that's dumb. Yeah. Okay. I'm sold. I, I think <laughs> he I... was totally a straw Vulcan in the no, series, yeah, which not, made I'm him not, fun. I'm but... not defending him. I realize that he's literally the straw man on purpose but the the idea that but it's interesting how many people i mean he was he was a fun character but there's also a lot of people that look up to him and i don't know i've read a few of their accounts and it's usually people who were like really emotionally hurt at some point and didn't want to be anymore and so like saw that sort of thing as a a sort of armor and vulnerability you know you can't hurt me if i don't care yeah and so you know there was there was that aspect to it, too, where this was important to people for 
other reasons than just making fun of things. It well, was I'm a assuming, source of strength. I'm assuming he also pulled a bunch of like smart ass. Oh, yeah. Not just smart ass, but also smart stuff out, right? So oh, the, he was always the one that was MacGyvering their way out of shit. Right. So it's like wanting to be more like Dr. House because he's a super genius by taking Vicodin, right? Yeah, or yeah. by abusing Vicodin, rather. <laughs> right. So it's like, you're not going to get any more like House by, by abusing drugs just because that's a thing he does, right? So you're emulating the wrong part of it. Yeah. Okay. And there is some advantage to not getting too worked up because sometimes you can, you know, lose control of yourself and you shouldn't. Yeah. All right. We're still on to why truth. Yes. Why truth. We've got at least two more good answers. Another one was to accomplish a specific goal. Because if you're seeking truth to accomplish that goal, you get feedback on what modes of thinking work and which don't. What set humanity firmly on the path of science was noticing that certain modes of thinking uncovered beliefs and that let us manipulate the world. Like it's sometimes really important whether doing this thing will make the plane fly or plummet out of the sky. Yeah, it actually ties back into a sentence from the first essay that I forgot to capture, which was, it wasn't by having the biggest muscles that humans rose to prominence on Earth, which is a uh, sentiment that Harry reflects in Methods of Rationality. Uh, and he, he, he suspects that much of that point is lost on wizards because they can just wave their little wands and make magic happen. He's like, no, look, the, our real superpower is brains. If you, even if you guys' wands stop working, we still got those. Yeah. Um, having accurate beliefs around the world to as a requisite to accomplish goals is i think really underappreciated mm-hmm. and i don't think i run into a lot of people who full out say nope having an accurate map is or they wouldn't use these words but expressing the sentiment that having an accurate map is pointless mm-hmm. because they can't believe that that's true right even in the sense of literally having an accurate map to get to work right yeah like if they're going if they they probably take a similar route to work every day or at least they know that work is over there and they live here so they need to go in a that way-ish direction they're not going to just try taking all right turns to see if they get there one day because they know that that's not how things work, right? Yeah. So I know I'm belaboring this point, but I once argued to somebody who didn't, who when I was in my, my teenage phase of arguing people out of their religion for fun, mm-hmm. um, had fallen back on fine, but I don't care about logic. And I was like, yes, you do. And I'm going to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the whole like, well, what is truth? Yeah. Like, well, if you walk off a cliff, then uh, it's true that you're going to plummet to your death. And that's why you're not going to do it. And you're, and you're going to plummet at roughly 9.8 meters per second per second. Yeah. Without a, without one of those baller squirrel suits that people on the internet jump off of cliffs with. What uh, those suits? look fun. Those like flying squirrel suits. Oh, those things. Yeah. yeah. Those are cool. The But, you know, the, the downside to pursuing truth to accomplish a specific goal is that once that goal is accomplished, you don't need to pursue the truth anymore. You're like, well, I got my plane. Now I'm going to go back to, you know, burning the fat of the lamb to my god. <laughs> <laughs> I used to worry about that, but I think that... The more you learn about the universe, the more complex it becomes, like this hydra where you cut the heads off. I think that we're not going to run out of problems anytime soon, so I don't worry about that anymore. But if all you care about is, like, what if your specific goal is to make other people believe in your god? Then there are ways of doing that, that you can research into that, but you aren't actually finding out the truth of the world. Yeah, so this is the dark side of epistemic rationality, right? Well, this is the, the dark side of um, applied rationality, where you're trying to solve goals. Epistemic right. rationality. Right, when... that's the second time today I flipped those. I meant instrumental rationality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Is that so, called dark arts? Or I think dark I think arts are something umbrella. more specific. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was, I was just saying that you can use the tools in a way that's actually harmful. And I can't think of a good martial arts metaphor for I think that. just martial arts in general, like you could just hurt somebody. Yeah, you could hurt somebody without meaning to, or you could hurt yourself. But then it's really clear that you're doing it wrong if you come out of a sparring match and you know with broken bones or something, right? Well, I mean, like if you're a trained uh, taekwondo artist and you just go into a bar fight in order to hurt someone. hurt people. Yeah, if you're part of the Cobra Kai, you shouldn't be doing that. 
But I think the downside is that you could learn martial arts with the expressed goal of beating up all your high school bullies and, you know, with, with all the vengeance in your heart and still get good at martial arts, right? There's no there's no actual blocker there, but that doesn't quite work for this because this is more encompassing, right? Maybe you can get good um, enough martial arts to kick ass, but you can't become a true martial artist or something. Is that a way to get around it? You can learn just enough martial arts that you can get in a bar brawl and satisfy your drive for violence, but then you're not, you know, attaining enlightenment or getting the, like, positive benefits of martial arts. Uh, and you're definitely, like, causing externalities on the rest of the world. I think at this point we're talking the differences between, you know, learning something and what we do with the thing that we are learning. Which, yeah. you know, you can always use technology for good or evil. Yeah, just like any tool. Yeah. I think the the con of the reason to learn truth is to find a specific goal is because, you know, similar to curiosity, once that goal is achieved, you don't necessarily have to keep searching for truth. That's why the first virtue is curiosity. Yeah. And the third reason that he gives, and this one is my personal favorite, is morality. Because this is, like, the reason I seek truth and i guess was taught to seek truth since since i was a child is that it is a moral imperative like the the jehovah's witnesses literally called their religion the truth with a capital t um but uh morality is you seek eh, you believe that to seek the truth is noble and important and worthwhile includes the belief that truth seeking is pragmatically important to society and therefore is incumbent as a duty upon all this in my opinion has the most pros for it because you continue to seek truth as an end to itself, regardless of, you know, whether you're curious or, I mean, curiosity is definitely a better motivator because then it's intrinsic, but you continue to seek truth. Even if you aren't all that curious about something, you continue to care about things being true. Even if you aren't specifically looking for truth, you think it's important, even if you don't have any specific goal that you're trying to accomplish with that truth. So I really like it. And this is the one that I push when uh, people ask, you know, like, well, how are you going to get people to stop believing in religion? I'm like, just, give someone a love of truth so deep that they really, really want to know the truth and they're eventually going to find out on their own that this religion thing is bullshit because they're going to run across the scientific method and asking questions like, why do you believe what you believe? And they're going to get to the the answer by themselves. But the, uh, the con side speaking to this uh, is that it's too easy to acquire as learned moral duties, modes of thinking that are dreadful missteps in the dance. To make rationality into a moral duty is to give it all the degrees of freedom of an arbitrary tribal custom. People arrive at the wrong answers and then indignantly protest that they acted with with propriety rather than learning from their mistakes. They feel like they are accomplishing their moral duty by going through the steps of rationality. And if you then say, I think you came to a wrong conclusion and this is why, they can be all indignant that like, no, I did my moral duty. How dare you try to say that I'm a bad person? Yeah not an accident and it's there's a lot to read into the use of the word virtue of curiosity or rather the first virtue of rationality is is curiosity because like living a virtuous life in the like greek sense wasn't just about like doing the right and wrong thing it that kind of stemmed from being a virtuous person but a virtuous person would do the right and wrong thing whether or not anyone was watching or whether or not they knew they could get away with it because it's just how it, it it was it made you a good person too and so part of part of you being a good person was that you just happened, you know, you did good things else uh, to the outside, too. Maybe, you know, you could even read maybe more into the word morality here, because this seems, like I said, more of the, the Greek sense of like morality rather than what we mean just by making right and wrong choices mm-hmm. or rather morally right and wrong choices. Um, I don't think any of these three work as a standalone justification on their own, right. but together they're they're good legs for this whole 
case for truth to stand on, right? Yeah. I suppose one, maybe satisfy curiosity is the fun aspect. Um, that like, there's this really f- good rush from actually figuring something out. You know, like finding your car keys after an hour of looking times whatever factor. When you solve a problem and you really get it, and it's and you know it's true because you can prove it, that's that feels really good. And so, I mean, there, there's a fun aspect to it, too. No one's going to say in the moment that they know exactly what it's like to be a deluded person who, or to be a person who deludes themselves with fake truths, you know, to get by or something, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you talk to like a religious fundamentalist, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, it's great. It's all um, double think. Right. But I think if you are in the middle of that sort of thing, I don't know what I've, I don't know if I've had a big enough transformation to come back from like the, the feeling of that rightness that you're doing it the right way. If that's tainted at the time, or if it's only tainted in hindsight, when you look back and realize like, Oh no, I was totally deluding myself to, to, you know, try and persuade others. Yeah. Well, I'm this, this is where he brought up the Spock example specifically was in the morality section where people uh, think that because they were, you know, all calm and rational and gave, you know, four significant digits in their estimate that therefore they are doing rationality right. And they get indignant if you point out that that's not, that's not actual truth seeking. That's just performing it. But when they come out afterwards, um, so maybe I could ask you from your, when you were a a proselytizing Jehovah's Witness, Mm -hmm. I imagine at the time you felt like you're doing the right thing. Or was there always this like nagging, like kind of dirty feeling that you... There was always a dirty feeling. Okay. Um, I I believe that it was important and that sharing the truth was the most important thing to do. But I don't know. It always felt dirty because... I'm guessing you never really in your heart believed it then. No, I did for quite a while. Is it possible you felt like you weren't examining the alternatives? No, I, I mean, when I talked about it with my friends, that was one thing. That was... Then that was, I was really helping them and saving their lives and all that. But going up to someone like just out on the street and trying to tell them about Jesus, it felt like being a pusher, you know? Okay. Yeah. I, I meant more, I guess, in the sense of like having like, the, you know, this this web of beliefs that you later realized was all false. Mm-hmm. In the lived moment of having those, if that felt dirty at the time or not. And I guess, yeah. To have the beliefs? I To, you know, justify them in a circle and do all the the mental gymnastics you have to do did the, did the mental gymnastics make you sore or did they feel good no, well because you don't notice the mental gymnastics on the surface right it's not until you start really diving deep into it which i mean i couldn't do until i was at least 12 12 or 13 is when i started noticing the flaws when you're younger than that you just like accept it you're like oh this is this is the truth and and you have this deep desire to know what is true but your parents tell you people in authority tell you and it's not until you you just you don't see the mental gymnastics. It's once right. you see them that you're bothered by them. So I wonder. I guess I'm, I'm kind of thinking because of like you know someone like Ken Ham who can get on stage and say the Earth is ten thousand yeah, years old. Yeah, how does he? I, I would I wonder, love to be able to see into his head. I wonder if I'd love it if I'd go insane. Like because I can imagine that he knows he's full of shit and that he's all up there just you he know can't. getting all the signal virtue that he wants. No, no, no and, he's 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 a true believer. So, but but what does that feel like in in the face of of? I guess maybe there's this awesome i know i'm really getting sidetracked now but because i'm examining a specific person but well i mean it's just like any other conspiracy theorist where they convince themselves that something's true that there's like a child pedophilia ring in the basement of the pizza hut you know the guy really believed that was the case yeah but like in the case and i, I keep picking on religion because it's the easiest biggest um, target we'd change maybe to social justice okay yeah i guess 
Because I, I can speak to having uh, really strong beliefs about social justice that eventually uh, seeds of doubt crept in and it got strong enough to the point where I did actually have to look up things. Nice. Oh. Can I can I set that up in the way that I was going to do with the religious one, which was, um, and if this isn't a good setup, just ignore it. This is uh, another you, controversial you, thing that we can hate on. No, it'll be fun. <laughs> um, there's, you have to do the kinds of mental tricks like not knowing the structure of a logical thought. You know, you can have a belief that justifies belief A that's justified belief B, which is justified by belief C, which also justifies belief A. And you've got this circle, and the rest of us know that's not how you you can't you can't support this web on a circle of nothing, right? I um, will say that even as a child, I was really really bothered by the fact that God hated gay people, because I I was just I know this sounds like a hippie thing to say, but I was really down with love. I was like, <laughs> everyone should love each other. And what is wrong if like two guys love each other? You know, I just could not get it. But your parents believe in this and you depend on them to give you food and shelter. And all your friends depend on this. Your entire social network is people who believe this. And if you don't also believe it, then you might die, you know, from neglect and exposure. So there was... And all that's behind the veil of your press secretary. You, you know, as a kid, yeah. you're not realizing all that stuff. Well, no, no. I actually did. It bothered me as a kid, but I... No, no. That, that you might be homeless if you disagreed with your parents? Or... Oh, that? No. I, yeah. I, I didn't think of it explicitly, <laughs> no. But uh, I, I, I felt the inability to reconcile a loving God with a God who hates gays. But, you know, I just didn't think about that. I was like... Some part of me was like, this is very important not to think about. And I am, didn't for as much as possible. That's rough. Yeah. And, you know, it was as it became more main mainstream and you saw more gay people, it was more and more in my face like, hey, God really hates these people. And it was harder to bury that when you actually saw gay people and knew them. But what is your social justice thing? Yeah, I was pretty aligned with the social justice movement. And I felt like I had read so much about it um, that I like it, it seems so obvious to me that, yeah, you should like support marginalized people. Feminism is good. Fighting racism is good, etc. You start to kind of just like absorb all of the things that people believe in social justice. And I remember points where uh, there were people that in the office that I was working in that would kind of, you know, I, I would argue with anybody about any of this stuff when it came up. And we kind of had a pretty good natured debates about it. But um, I started to, as the social justice got more and more like radical leftist, uh, have a hard time defending some things like I, I think the best example is when it started being okay to write hashtag kill all men oh wow and make jokes about like you know male tears uh talking about how all men are terrible and i was on the other side trying to justify to my like a bunch of my coworkers who are men who are asking well this seems terrible what's the deal with that and i would have to kind of go like read and see what other people had written and go okay well it's because they're not actually talking about all men and I, I heard myself, like, saying these justifications in, like, the back of my brain. I was like, I don't think I, I don't think I believe that. And this actually makes me feel dirty to say these things. But it was really hard to push through why and to sit there and actually look at the beliefs because I didn't want to, I guess it's tribalism. I guess I didn't want to, like, you know, you don't defect from my tribe. Yeah. But um, that's all, like, in, in hindsight. But you definitely have a feeling that you can't articulate. Did you lose a bunch of friends when you... Oh, Stop yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah. I think that sucks. I like. I like. I I appreciate you sharing that because that feeling, like you said, of not really knowing how to justify what you just said because you all you know is what you've been told you believe on some subjects, and then you have to go off and find it and then rehearse that argument and feel hollow saying it. I I think that 
that sounds like a very familiar sensation. I'm trying to think of when that happened to me, and I'm sure I could think of something, but nothing's coming to mind. I've never been wrong before. Um, <laughs> no, it's just uh, that that's sort of what I was thinking about um, when I was trying to think of the unvirtuous truth seeker, right? Um, trying to bring it back to the essay. But I, I think, um, oh man, I had something more to say there. Shoot. I hate this. It's like it's happening tonight. It's Monday. Uh, yeah, geez. you can kind of tell. It was a good Monday though. It's productive at work for like the first time in a couple of weeks, which was nice. Congratulations! Yay! Actually, I finished something that I was gonna take like another twenty-five hours to do because that's how long I estimated that it would take. Mm-hmm. But rather than do it the hard way, I was like, you know what? What's the easy way to do this? And I just emailed or messaged somebody who I know works on the code base that we were interacting with, like trying to figure the issue out on our side. Mm-hmm. And rather than me have to figure this out over the next two three days he was like oh yeah we changed that endpoint hit it like this instead and i'm like cool it took me 30 minutes <laughs> nice. asking for advice is an amazing life hack it mm-hmm. is and it's, it's one of the things that i think is been like it's just not just advice because this wasn't like me consulting a senior on how to fix this problem it was me going straight to the source of somebody who was working on the changes that we were trying to like update our stuff to work with their stuff and like, wait, just tell me what you guys did here. And then I can figure this out. When I talk about it, it's in it tomorrow morning. I'm not going to just say I'm done. I cheated. I'm going to explain the virtue of how I cheated and why I want to do that all the time. So awesome. if you get the opportunity to, right? Yeah. It'd be like if it really mattered, like what an author meant when they used a sentence or something. And you could sit, we, we could sit and argue about it for an hour. Or we could shoot them a text and they'd be like, I meant this. And it's like, boom, done. All right, cool. There's also the matter of um, comparative value of time. Like I, I realized in this case, it was absolutely worth the time. But every now and then, I my boss is like bu- way bit more busy than she should be, to be honest. She is at work 12 hours a day, just about every day. And I know sometimes there's a problem. I could go to her and she could probably help me figure it out in about five minutes. And for me, it would take a good half hour to 45 minutes to puzzle this thing out. But on the other hand, if I'm in the slow part of the month, I'm not doing anything in that half hour to 45 minutes anyway. And if I can save for that five minutes, it's probably worth it. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this, this would be especially the case for things like artificial intelligences, you know? Maybe if they're working on something really super important, you don't want to take one minute of their time if it takes you a month to figure out something because their time is just that valuable that you're better off spending that month. But they're not humans, so they could do multiple things at once. We're, we're assuming that they're up at the limit of their, you know, technological capabilities or something. Well, for this argument. Well, let's let's further destroy your argument and point out that the the machine's running on machine speed and we're run, we're running on meat speed. Right? right, that's why I said a minute. And yeah, for it has to so, take a month. So, well, yeah, for them, well, I guess what problem could it probably take us a month a month to solve? That would, I guess, that's not the right scaling to use here, right? It's a, it's a million to one, not not thirty to one. What what if you you know delay the solving of death by one minute? I mean, that's that's at least a few lives lost. Hmm. What problem could you possibly come to with to a super intelligence with that would take you that you could solve in a month by yourself, but that would take it a full minute to solve? I don't know. Yeah, right there. <laughs> there. <laughs> oh, thanks for blowing my hypothetical out of the water with another hypothetical. No, that's all right. All right. No, I think it, we're... It's good to be conscious of that, though. I've been doing job interviews, and they keep asking the question of how do you handle collaboration or explain how you worked with a team before. And I always like to point out that, like, I try to be really aware of like the time of my boss and my supervisors i think it's cool you know collaboration is great but yeah you do have to be like really strategic about how you use it because you don't want to be doing what you just mentioned like uh taking more of the time of someone who has a lot of their on their plate already to you know benefit you if you do have the time to work on it i get annoyed with it happening the other way too though like i think one of the reasons my boss works so much is because she spends way too much time on things that don't matter uh 
long story short, a payment that went through the bank was four cents less than what we had on our system. And so I was just like, hey, I'm just going to write this off. Is that cool? She's like, no, research it, find out what happened, make sure it gets transferred correctly. I'm like, it's four fucking cents. I'll give you the four cents. <laughs> Don't waste my time. My time is worth more than the half hour to an hour I would spend fixing this four cent issue. Okay, Pretty sure maybe. you make more than eight cents an hour. So yes, yeah. I was really annoyed that she wanted me to work on a four cent problem. But to steel man her case, it might be that, look, we need to know how this happened. Because next time it might not be four cents, it might be $400. Then we'd look into it. I know how it happened. Someone mistyped the key on the bank sign. <laughs> <laughs> Someone saw, you know, the number put 0. .00 at the end instead of 0. .04. That's fair. And I do need to point out because I think there's the other, the other thing about being the employee who asks lots of questions to, to superiors is that you're the annoying squeaky wheel that, you know, can't handle anything yourself. So right. you need to be seen to be able to tackle things yourself and figure it out, even if it takes you three times as long as it would if you asked somebody else. So my general strategy, except in interviewing a little bit too, was like basically... So they ask, you know, how do you handle a problem that you've never seen before if you work on a team with seniors? And I'm like, well, it depends on how much progress I feel like I've made in 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something. Mm. If, I'm, if I haven't made one step in 20 minutes, I'll shoot someone a message and be like, where do I get started? And they'll respond to the link and then there I go, you know, and then at least another 20 minutes or something. But I'm not going to, I could sit and burn a whole day and I've seen coworkers do this and it drives me insane. They'll approach problems in the wrong way. And they could, and then they've, at the end of the day, they've got to throw all that work away and backtrack or start from scratch. So I was like, no, no, if you just asked somebody 20 minutes into your day, rather than after three days of damage, right? then you could have saved us all this time. Right. So, and that so saves I, the company, you know, three days of wages for you too. Right. So I try to find a midline between those two things. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's where you have to develop the instinct of when it's worth asking. Yeah. Right. I just tend to always do it because I have this, uh, well, I have social anxiety. So I was coming from a place of having never asked questions. So... Uh, just updating more towards ask questions when you get stuck has helped me a lot. I still think I ask fewer questions than probably the average employee. I've been trying to make a conscious effort to ask more questions too and, and to be more eagerly ready to admit that I don't know something. It still feels awkward, but I've, the more I push through it, the easier it's getting. Mm -hmm. You know, Even it's like, hey, have you heard of this You know, book or this TV show or whatever? Rather than me kind of him and ha and be like, oh, I don't know, maybe, because it leaves you some face of like being out <laughs> of the loop. I'll say, never heard of it. Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's, it's easier to get started with examples like that than when someone asks you during an interview. This happened uh, at the last one I was at. They were like, hey, so how much did this do you know? I'm like, not that much, but I'm happy to pick it up if I need to. And they're like, well, there's none of that here. You don't need it. We were just checking. <laughs> but, cool. but if I had said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm okay, then it would have wasted my time and theirs by me pretending that I, that I knew something, right? So sometimes it pays off in a really funny way. Telling the truth is good. Maybe as yes. a trick, they sometimes ask about systems that don't actually exist. I saw one of those in the programming, programming Huber subreddit. Someone was like, how much do you know about the uh, Illuminate JavaScript library or something? And mm -hmm. the person, she's like, I've never heard of it. And they're like, good, we just made it up. You passed the test. <laughs> yeah, I had that in an interview recently. Really? Oh, nice. Uh, it was not that uh, not the Illuminate, but they, they actually just made up. They're like, how much do you know about uh, this? Like, okay, okay it was, uh, I think it was, you, you were asked to teach a class on and then they said something like squid do or like it was some ridiculous goofy word mm -hmm. and then uh, there's like you don't know very much about this how would you handle that and i explained how i would handle it and then after the question i was like if i can ask is that a real thing and they all laughed and they said no we made it up for the interview that's perfect <laughs> i'm curious were you already like into the rationalist scene when or or knew about it when you like started dropping out of the the social justice activism thing yes but um i don't no, actually, yeah, rationality did have a lot to do with it. I was going to say it didn't. I wasn't really that deep into the rationality community when I started dropping out of social justice, but uh, I, I started the drop very slowly, and then um, I got back into rationality, and then I 
was able to articulate the problems that I had been having and oh that's why you know that bothered me because I didn't look it up I, I was just like saying what other people had said and I didn't go to the root of the problem I didn't look up any of the statistics or the scientific studies that have been done which is what I should have done that's why that bothered me so that was awesome uh, kind of awesome. It was kind of hard. Right. Having like killing sacred beliefs hurts physically. Yeah. But um, it was the right thing to do. How long ago was that? Four years. Okay. Around three to five years. Right. It's it's been a process, and uh, it's you know I'm it's still a work in process. The second virtue is relinquishment. So. <laughs> nice. And it, it can be painful depending on the belief it is, right? I think it usually is painful because. It, it just something hurts about losing beliefs that you had. I think it can be freeing too. Like, cer- yeah, certainly beliefs that you care about anyway. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like if I, if someone corrects me about the population of Japan, I wouldn't feel any oh. like, other than the <laughs> embarrassment of having been wrong, then it's like, okay, whatever. But and then I'm like, oh, good. Now I know the right number. Um, some are some are easier practice cases, but they don't really, I don't think they're in practice cases. They don't translate really well to an emotional loss. The loss of, you know, the emotional attachment to a belief like. Um, well, like losing your religion. Yeah, because you lose your social circle, um, that like link to your childhood, that like belief that you're not gonna die, you're just gonna go to heaven, be in paradise forever. <laughs> that mm-hmm. all sucks. Yeah, a lot. But then knowing you're window. not gonna go to hell is kind of cool too. Maybe. Was that ever something you worried about? No, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't have a hell. Oh, smart. That you just die. Good call. But I mean, I was scared of death from the very beginning. So wait, if you just die, what's the point? You're dead. The same reason we don't like dying. No, no, no. But what's the point of, of being a Jehovah's Witness and proselytizing? Oh, oh, if you're good, then you get to live forever in a flawless paradise. Oh, if you're bad, you just die. Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I was going to say, like, if there's not a payoff even for the good ones, then no, how, no, do, no, how, do you, how do you market this? <laughs> well, I mean, you could market it as have a good life now, which is kind of like what we do, right? That's fair. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you can, you, can go door, you can go door to door and say, look, you know, like like selling your multi-level marketing scheme. If you really believe it, then, you know, you think you're helping people. Yeah. Okay. Like but they your... did actually have infinite reward, so. Yeah. Having your consciousness erased sounds worse than hell to me. I can I can imagine states of being that are worse than being dead because you know I was in one for a couple years and uh, and I would rather not exist than than to be in a hell. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If 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 you imagine it's not just your like sensory input being attacked in hell, but like also everything about your cognition, your emotions, everything about you being fucked with, right? Yeah. Like there was that Simpsons joke. I think it was Bart saying, you know, wouldn't you just get used to the pain, like? you know, easing into a hot bath. Mm-hmm. And it's like, sure, if you got to keep your meat suit and everything worked like it does up here, right? But if you got really creative, then things just could hurt way more than you, they could ever possibly hurt on Earth. Yeah. And it freaks you out way more than it should because they're also screwing with that meter. So yeah, things can get really messed up. You read about some of the medieval tortures that they, they did. And, you know, there's a reason they called it going in medieval on someone's ass in Pulp Fiction. I would much rather be dead than to go through some of those tortures. I thought you were just talking about depression. Oh, I was literally talking about depression. Not to get too personal, but I, I had a brush with suicide because it, it would have been better to be dead than be in that continued pain. But that passed and I got better and things are much better now. But uh, yeah, I would rather be dead than to be in that sort of permanent depression for all eternity too. I've never felt that. I have had depression. I've never had suicidal depression. I've never felt suicidal tendencies. And I've had to like talk friends down who had suicidal tendencies. I didn't know what to tell them because I couldn't empathize with the feeling. Luckily, there's hotlines to call. Uh, I I was in a situation where I had to talk a friend down. I was able to call, consult somebody. They sent me the number for a hotline and I talked to them and they gave me some advice. And yeah. then you know the rest of the night worked out. But 
Uh, so yeah, if you're ever in a situation, Google suicide hotline and you'll find your local numbers. So cool. should that ever happen? Hopefully never. Good I advice. actually also don't know what to tell people who are suicidal. You call those numbers and you find out. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm serious. You delegate. Yeah. Well, why not? They're at least trained, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if my toilet broke, I could sit there and try to fix it or I could call somebody and they could say, do this and that would fix it. Right. So if it works for a broken toilet, it works for a person. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's just how physics works. <laughs> Take a plunger to the person's face and they'll be better. I'm pretty sure that's in the sequences too. <laughs> a lot of things are in the sequences. Plunge your friends. That's should what we... it should have been titled. <laughs> should we move on to what's a bias again? That sounds good. All right. The last one is what's a bias again? I will go ahead and read the first quote that I pulled out of it. We want to get to the truth and we find various obstacles getting in the way of our goal. These obstacles are not wholly dissimilar to each other. For example, there are obstacles that have to do with not having enough computing power available, or information being expensive. It so happens that a large group of obstacles seem to have a certain character in common, to cluster in a region of obstacle-to-truth space, and this cluster has been labeled biases. This one was also alluded to in the first essay of the lens being reliably distorted. Then I've talked about biases a lot, and I think we have too, but... I guess I wanted to say that this is more foreshadowing. There's a lot more in that in that first post that covers kind of explicitly says some things, but it also just hints that like here's a lot of the stuff we're gonna be covering. This thing I'm you know, this one sentence here, we're gonna talk about that for eighty thousand words. I don't yeah, know how long yeah. these are. I'm thinking my numbers are way off. He says, We seem to label as biases those obstacles to truth which are produced not by the cost of information, nor by limited computing power, but by the shape of our own mental machinery. For example, the machinery to win arguments in adaptive political contexts. Believing what others believe, to get along socially. Our brains are doing something wrong, and after a lot of experimentation and or heavy thinking, someone identifies the problem in a fashion that System 2 can comprehend. Then we call it a bias. And by the way, System 2 is differentiated. System 1 is like your instinctive, intuitive... Lizard brain. Yeah, lizard brain. And System 2 is like the more slow, contemplative... I can think about things instead of acting on instinct. And your lizard brain can also do basic math and stuff. But it's also very easy to trick your lizard brain with carefully worded math problems. Mm -hmm. But like two plus two, you don't have to sit there and, you know, do the mental math. You just, you kind of just know it. If I ask, you know, but you can do. um, The classic one is a baseball bat and a baseball together cost a dollar ten. If the baseball bat costs one dollar more than the baseball, how much does the baseball cost? Right, so people, their immediate answer is a do- is a dime because yeah. that's the difference. Yeah, 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 but the real answer is what a uh, fifteen cents, five cents, five. Yeah, yeah. See, because since the bat is a dollar more, that the bat would be a dollar and five, and that makes a dollar ten altogether. I couldn't do mental math yeah. while making eye contact. That's why I never look at people when I talk to them. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're always doing math while you're talking. Yep. Uh, even if we can do no better for knowing, it is still a failure that arises in an identifiable fashion from a particular kind of a cognitive machinery, not from having too little machinery but from the shape of the machinery itself. Biases are distinguished from errors that arise from damage to an individual human brain or from absorbed cultural mores. Biases arrive from the machinery that is humanly universal. That's another case where they mention later on that it's not just like necessarily a moral duty to reduce biases in the world because biases are bad and evil. It was more that you are trying to instrumentally you know, accomplish a goal or because you're curious, you want to know what the truth is and these are things that you find in your way. So then you deal with them at that point. But again, not all biases are evil. Like uh, the lizard brain uses heuristics. Heuristics can be really good. Like often uh, the, the obvious stereotypical thing that your brain jumps to is the correct thing. 
Right. Well, and heuristics are, are distinct from biases, right? So heuristics are more about your brain not having enough computational, what, computational power or something, right? Mm -hmm. So the heuristic is the shortcut, and the bias is the crack in the lens. Yeah. So... I like that he was he was more making the point that this isn't this isn't about IQ and intelligence. This isn't about individual processing power that you have. It's about a problem in the machinery that is universal to all humans, thus making it sort of, you know, like an art that everyone can use to get better at thinking in general, as opposed to something that is there to train like your IQ or something, you know? It uses a lot of highfalutin language and stuff, but I think that that you're right. It's trying to, to assuage the concern that, oh, I'm not smart enough for this, or, oh, this is only for those esoteric IQ 160 people. Mm -hmm. Often um, high IQ people, or like, uh, I think they're, you know, James Randi fooling uh, scientists and doctors, for example, show that the smarter you are often, like, the easier you are to fool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can definitely become what they what he cautions against later as the, a sophisticated arguer. Hmm. I can't be wrong for all of these really good reasons. If you're not familiar with Randi's screwing with scientists, um, last I heard there was, he was writing a book on that was going to cover like all of it comprehensively, maybe a new thing that he was doing. I know that he put a couple of students in labs back with like in the eighties when they were doing like serious magic research in, in government funded labs in the, across the country. I think it was the seventies. Seventies. Yeah. Well, Uri Geller was popular in the eighties, wasn't he? And maybe it was maybe. the seventies too. It might've just been like a period of 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, whenever it was, there were, there were, there were charlatans who would go out there and they could do four shitty tricks and they'd be sitting, they'd, you know, get paid to go to a lab and do it under scientific scrutiny. Yeah. They claimed it was ESP or, um, telepathy or like, uh, remote viewing. Right. So it's not like magic, it was, uh, like tricks. They didn't think it was magic tricks. It was, but, um, it was that like the government was trying to see whether or not you could read someone's mind no totally but like uri could do like a spoon bending thing yeah. that that they would Which would be like they, telekinesis they would want to see yeah so it's really... randy had a couple of students go in they were going to go do magic just like uri geller was doing and if at any point they were asked are you faking this mm -hmm. they were to say yes james randy sent me and they <laughs> were never asked oh over nice. the many months that they were there doing these studies okay so even like the basic question of like you fucking with me mm -hmm. never came up because I guess maybe they didn't occur to them that they're that they're able they, to be fooled. Yeah, they were very smart, but they were naive. Like they never thought that someone would intentionally try to mislead them for you know financial gain or for uh, notoriety. Right. Yeah. Which is a stupid oversight, and I'd like to think our scientists are smarter now. <laughs> no. It's not even a smartness thing. It's more of a like trust thing. Mm -hmm. Like a, a lot of people in the rationality community tend to be very high openness. I would hope our scientists are more jaded now. <laughs> <laughs> I think they are. So. Yeah. I think the skeptic community well, has helped with that. Kind yeah, of. Definitely. There was that recent bunch of papers that uh the like hoax papers that Yeah, got some, some got some popular retweets. That was a different that was a different kind of phenomena though. That wasn't someone going in and tricking somebody to their face. That was more just like no one actually checking to see if this story checked out, right? Um so I'm thinking of the uh like the symbolic penis or what was that one that was a couple years ago? That was um I think it was it the same group of people, but they did another round of papers. Yeah, recently this third another one. The only one, I can't remember what this was, but it was some, they, they wanted to make a case that look at these, um, these journals that they'll post, they'll, they'll publish anything that looks like it's, you know, pro social justice warrior stuff and the medical, the metaphysical penis. And they had some, if you haven't, if you're not familiar that. with this little scandal, well, the, the thing is, is that people would retweet about, oh yeah, they were all fooled. Ha ha. But it turned out that this was published in like a pay to publish journal. It was turned down from a ton of real journals. Okay. And that didn't come out in the initial wave of this release. And so... This was sort of like a, a second level deception, and it was more on the people consuming it rather than the people doing the tests. There was a more recent one. 
I don't remember the details about that's that. That's the one, one I'm though. thinking of. It, it, so goal squared. That one also had its issues, though. It was like claiming that it did a certain thing. Uh, Ozzy had a really good refutation on their blog about why they think that most of it was bullshit, although I think they agreed that the last one was a crappy paper and shouldn't have been published. can link to that, too. I think that was a really good article. Please do, because I think I heard about this in passing, but I haven't read about it, so that'll be fun. We're off topic. Okay. That's <laughs> right. I, I did also notice in this in this uh, post that there was a call for word both to politics is the mind killer and universal fire. It's like, that's just fucking awesome. I think we talked about politics is the mind killer before, which is exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. People go funny in the head when talking politics, so save those conversations for higher level uh I was going to say, like, you know, rationalist on rationalist discussions, if you're going to have one of these arguments, or use, like, distant hyperbole examples, or just, or like, historical examples or something, Yeah, the right? blues and the greens. Yeah. yeah. Or 17th century France is a lot easier to talk about in a political heated situation than today. Yeah. So, what is, what was Universal Fire? Was that, if everything... That uh, was the one with Phlogiston? Okay. So, we'll have to save the mystery of Phlogiston or Phlogiston. I'm not sure how you say it for another day. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I've heard, I think I've heard it both ways. It's one of those things, I think there's probably a word for it that we'll probably mispronounce if we only have read it, where you say something different if you've only read it before and then someone says it in real life and you're like, oh, that's how you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Epitome, for example, I thought it was pronounced epitome ah. up until a few years ago. I know someone who thought demonstrably was pronounced demonstratably. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It's like, why Why are demons involved in this <laughs> the, This word? Um, I've Pulled out this quote because I really love it. If you're a scientist just beginning to investigate fire, it might be a lot wiser to point to a campfire and say, fire is that orangey bright hot stove over there, rather than saying, I define fire as an alchemical transmutation of substances, which releases phlogiston. Yeah. I've always thought it'd be a good interview for a tech question to ask, like, what's a computer? Yeah. And, you know, you could say, well, it's like a Turing complete system. That blah, blah, blah. Or you could just pull out your phone like this thing. <laughs> yeah. This this is a computer. Efficiency yeah. of kind of uh, explaining. Pointing up concept. or pointing down. Yeah. At that point, though, you're also guessing at what your interviewer wants to hear. Are they someone who wants, you know, a quick, dirty, practical answer? Or are they someone who wants to know the theory behind computation well, that's why you research the company that you're interviewing at. <laughs> right, yeah, you look at the Glassdoor reviews. But if I was asking that question to an interviewee, I would I would want to see how, to, how they'd react to an odd sideball question. Okay. And, you know, I'd probably learn something because they're probably smarter than I am. They have some great answers. <laughs> but if they had do that thing where they're like, that's not a real question, and then come back from that, that's, that's the reason I'd ask a question like that. The fact that it's about computers is only because it would be a computer company, right? So Yeah. All right, we've been going for a while. We should move on. Okay. I also want to say that we probably will probably we definitely will not be spending this much time on things going forward this was just like our big hey we're doing this we're having a squee little kickoff talking in depth but in the future they're going to be much quicker because we can't we this would turn into just the less wrong sequences podcast yeah we'll do we'll do bullet points for the future ones maybe yeah. big highlights fun tie-ins that sort of thing but and certainly notes. Huh? and notes <laughs> and notes yes yeah. and probably probably just two per episode yeah that sounds good it's probably a better uh length cool so before we get to listener feedback, I have an announcement as well. Dun, dun, dun. Tell us. Okay. My announcement is that um, it's probably been mentioned before on this podcast a few times that I was writing a novel for a while. And actually, it's been over a year and a half, I guess, since I finished the first draft. And there's been a lot more work done on it since that point. But I have finally decided that I am going to do the the thing that seems to be all the rage in rationalist circles now where we publish our fiction serially online. 
Uh, so starting November 11th, I will be publishing the first chapter of my novel, What Lies Dreaming, at whatliesdreaming.com. And then I'll be putting them out one chapter every week for 44 weeks until it's done. So are you going to be releasing chapters that you've already written or are you uh, going to have to do like significant editing to them before you post them? The whole thing is done. Um, in theory, I could just post the whole thing up right now. I'm probably going to give it one last look and mm -hmm. change some last details at the last moment because that's how writers are. Um, you're always tweaking right up until the last second. But yeah, the, the whole thing is done. And in theory, I don't have to change anything at all. And you can cut this if you want, but I think it would be valuable to plug the Patreon component to this. Oh, okay. Um, at the beginning, because then people can know about it. Maybe even set the Patreon up in advance if you're already plugging the plugging it here, right? Yeah. So you can set the Patreon up beforehand. So I've actually already set the Patreon up. There we go. Yeah. The Patreon is patreon.com slash Eniash Brodsky. Or uh, you can go to whatliesdreaming.com, and it will also have a link over the Patreon, of course. But yeah, depending on the level of Patreon support, you can get next, week, next week's chapter a week early. Uh, you can get author's notes. You can get deleted content because there's a lot of stuff that I went and cut through in my various revisions. Uh, I'm going to have to pay for that one. That sucks. Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was going to pay anyway, but I've got to see the stuff that hit. I think I like the stuff. I like I don't buy DVDs anymore because it's not the early 2000s, but I do go to YouTube when movies come out and look at deleted, the deleted scenes for movies that I like. I well, love the process. I love being able to see what the person's like thought process was when they're creating something. Yeah, that, that'll be both in the notes and in the, the cut stuff. But just... Just so you guys know, it was cut for a reason. Some of it was actually bad. Yeah, but that's good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, it, again, it's fun. It, yeah, obviously, if it was great and you wanted it, people to it left it in. But yeah. it's fun to see why what was left out and then then why on that sort of thing. Yeah, what the branching path is in okay. the timeline, the way it could have gone. Or also, I'm a writer too, so I like to see like what should I cut from my work. All mm -hmm. right. Well, then, hopefully, you guys will enjoy that. And then, just like watching deleted scenes from movies you're gonna wonder why didn't they put that one in yeah. sometimes because <laughs> yeah. i think sometimes the answer might be because it's too long that way and that could go mm -hmm. i doubt that's much of a constraint with a with a book that no one told you to cut that yet right it absolutely so, was a constraint really i cut a lot of things well in my opinion it sort of starts slow and builds and it gets to a really great place but as i was reading through it the second and third time i was like i gotta cut more from the front the front is just a little too long before things get going and so i i cut an quite a bit from the front actually and i still think it takes a little longer than i would like it to get to the really juice, juicy stuff but uh i guess it's less of a constraint once you're publishing weekly because i was originally thinking of publishing in a novel right if you're publishing weekly it doesn't matter as much people are just going to read one chapter a week but yeah you can make it as long as you want yeah uh wild bow <laughs> right a good example exactly of that. but i still didn't want to make it too long I do also have a thing uh, at certain levels once the ebook comes out, because I am going to just put it out as an ebook for anyone to buy in one novel shot if they want. At certain level, you get the ebook for free. Uh, at certain other level, you get a physical book for free shipped to you. Uh, at a higher level, you can get up to two books, both signed and personalized if you'd like. Oh, and there is one thing. The book, I divided it up. It takes place over the course of eight days. So I divided it up into section for each day. Uh, at one of the higher tier levels, when we start a new day, you get all the chapters for that, that day immediately, as opposed to having to wait one per week. So Cool. Yeah. I'm really curious to read this, because okay. I didn't yet, yeah. even though you sent me a copy before you went to Burning Man. Right. <laughs> and just, just so everyone knows, there's always you know a worry if you take a long travel out into the desert that you're going to get in a car accident or something. It's like, Stephen, in case I die, 
I want you to put this out on the internet because I spent so much time on it. Someone should see it if I die. Yeah, the first time you went to Burning Man, I think you didn't know what to expect, and all you knew you'd be, you know, in the desert for a week. Right. And at, like it was the it was the middle of the night before you left. I woke up the like the day that you'd left, and there's an email that said, "If I die, please make sure this gets out." Yes. <laughs> That's great. It's like, oh, here's what to do with my money. You know, here's my last will. No, it's like here, just publish this book. Yeah. Yeah, did you make any arrangements for like your assets or anything, or was it just your book? No, no, fuck my assets. I don't <laughs> care. The book is the thing that I've really your poured legacy. my life into. Yeah, Love it. that's awesome. Uh, so, as quickly as a brief recap, the little summary that I have here: Ahem. famine racks second century Rome, food riots rage in the streets, and the emperor struggles to hold on to power in the midst of a burgeoning coup. He recalls the German legion to Rome to restore order. Unbeknownst to him, a hidden evil slips into the city along with the returning legion. As civil war boils over and black magics run unchecked, an ancient horror stirs from its dreams, finally roused after eons of slumber. Sounds dope. Spooky. Yeah. I'm excited. Why is it going on November 11th? I, I don't know. I just, just I needed to set a date to start, and I was like, okay, this gives me about a month and a half to get ready. So Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. Yeah. Me too. And everyone else should be. I'm, I, I look forward to it. If it has the similar vibe to the rest of writing, I can tell I'm going to enjoy it already. So Thank you. Yeah. That nice grim dark aesthetic. Yeah, definitely. Oh, 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 oh. And I decided this just a few days ago. Everyone who is a Patreon supporter of the Basin Conspiracy is gonna get the first three chapters a week early just so they, you know, can get a free sample taste. Awesome. Nice um, to have rewards for this show too, so Alright, that that is what I got. I'm excited about this. Hope you guys end up liking it. I'm excited too. It should be fun. How long are I know that when we had Max on, he asked us not to say how long uh, Crystal Society was. Because uh-huh. when I was talking with him about it before, I think right when he published it, but before we did the episode, and he was like, yeah, it's about as long as the fourth Harry Potter book. And I was like, wait, it's so like 734 pages? Okay. And he was like, I don't know if it's exactly that, but it was a similar <laughs> word count. Because for some stupid reason, I had, now I only remember the fourth and fifth book lengths, but I used to have all of them in my head somewhere for some stupid reason. Okay. And yet I can't off the top of my head tell you my dad's birthday. So like my priorities are totally in order. Yeah. Uh, but uh, how long is your book? 120,000 words. How long is that compared to other books? Cause I don't know. I think I, that's average. Yeah. Most books are, well, most books used to be around a hundred thousand. They've been creeping longer lately. So about 120,000 is getting close to about average now. Yeah. yeah it's hard. a little bit on the longer side of average, but yeah, basically average. I love that people have the, you know, taste for larger novels again mm-hmm. is that like two to three hundred pages or is that four to five i have um, no idea because i know page size depends on page size and text size and all that well but. no uh generally in a published novel it's 250 words per page so um somewhere in the 400 pages range okay cool because i read all of the wheel of time series most of it twice and that was like eleven thousand word wait no eleven thousand hold on it was 11,000 something. 11,000 pages. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, yeah, that sounds closer to right. Because yeah. they were like eight, 900 pages each and they're 15 books. So um, I think I can handle this. Yes, definitely. And I did read Worm, so. I'm... Then you can handle it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Great. Sounds awesome. I'm excited. Cool. All right. Should we go on to listener feedback? Okay. Yeah. Right. I had a real quick one. Well, we'll see how long. I'll Whatever. You guys tell me how long this should take. Someone commented on episode 36, a link to uh, permanent mental effects from LSD. Oh, yeah. And I read that and I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. And then luckily it opens up with saying, these are the permanent changes I've noticed after doing a fuck ton of LSD. And they linked to saying that that was about 250 micrograms once a week for a year. Okay. About average. So luckily that's uh, a lot more than 
anyone I know for the most part. So when I was thinking, when I was reading through this, I didn't have to be super worried that I was going to be hit by these because I had taken well under a fuck ton. So, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to go through the what? Well, I guess there's eleven. But I'll go through really fast and say just yes or no, and then we can dive in. So, number one, worst memory. I don't think so, really. I think my memory is similar than it, as it was. It's hard to say. I have a hard time saying because I've always had a shitty memory. Similar. So I have no idea. But I can't remember how bad my memory used to be, but it doesn't. I don't feel like it's any worse. I haven't done LSD, so if you want to do a like pre post op, yeah, no, we could do like the, the what is it? The optimized mind. The I can't remember the name of things. Maybe my memory is bad right now. <laughs> right. So this wouldn't be a good time to test that. But you could test before and after. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fun. Number two, gaps in thought. This is more just kind of saying that their thinking kind of feels spacey, like their thoughts aren't really tied together. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that way. I can see how that happens, but I think maybe what, if I had to guess, they're more just aware that their thoughts are doing that all the time. I actually think that I am a little more spacey than I used to be. Like I used to have a lot more anxiety in general in life, and this having a little bit of space between my thoughts has made me feel like a little bit dumber, but also just a lot more mindful. And a lot more enjoying of life, too, in general. I don't have this constant, like, racing going on in my head, you know? Yeah, I think... Sounds amazing. That that sort of ties into number three. Feeling less like I'm the one thinking of my thoughts. Well, that's not exactly it. Um, Number five, permanent increased well-being. In a way that's hard to put my finger on. I could sort of attest to that, but it's really hard for me to say, because and this happens with every big shift in my personality. It always comes with... Something that could be a plausible explanation Mm -hmm. um, and other big life changes. Mm -hmm. So I can't pin it down. So like my life's gotten a lot better. I'm a much happier person. I tried LSD the month before I got my first real grown-up job and had like income and a savings account and health insurance. So like my life's a lot better objectively. um, And it happened right after this happened. So it's hard to see if the causal arrow is really – or if the the temporal arrow is causal or not. But um they i have a similar problem like when i first started um working out i also had just gotten surgery and i got a lasik not too long after that and i started up the podcast and i just made so many life changes all at once that it was hard to say what led to what you know i was having a fantastic relationship for the first time ever and so i would sometimes say yeah i when i when i did this one thing it led to all these other changes but who knows what exactly had caused it, you know? And recently, I've also had major life changes. I had a major divorce. You know, I went through a year where instead of working for the man, I was writing a novel. And there was a lot of things that changed in my life then, too, at about the first time I tried LSD. So hard, to, again, to point it to any one thing. I I do slightly <laughs> blame LSD for, like, because I, I finished my novel before I took any, right? Because I was like, I don't want to change who I am while I'm still working on this. <laughs> now I am... That sort of angst and self-hatred and having anxiety in life really drove my writing a lot. And I'm go- I'm going to get back into writing again soon. But it has been, God, like nine months since I've written anything. And I'm like, God damn it. I took LSD and I stopped writing. Why am I so happy with life? This sucks. Well, maybe you need to write about different subjects. <sighs> well, and I think you're selling yourself short. You still maintain a blog. You do this and another podcast. And you do write. You're just not publishing stuff r- lately, right? So, uh, Well, no, I, I haven't really been writing fiction at all in the past nine months. Weren't you at the coffee shop yesterday writing stuff? I, I've just started again. Okay. so Like literally just in the past couple of weeks. Well, I mean, you did just finish a book too. So like before the stretch. I guess I'm... 
And there was the whole getting a new job and, you know, renovating this place. And there was a lot of oh, stuff taking so up time. My... Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, you know, there were a lot of nice... other time pressures on me. Yeah. We're operating a buzz side by candlelight was probably a, you know, big uh, time, time sucks. So, yeah. Um, and even me just setting up my new apartment, like I didn't have to renovate anything, but there was no furniture and it was just a nightmare before I had any kind of like living room area. There's, we, we just got a couch uh, two days ago. Mm-hmm. There was no couch. We were sitting on the floor. There's no desks. Oh, it's a nightmare if you don't have your workspace set up. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things you take for granted until you don't have it. So, yeah, that could definitely, like, just throw you into disarray. Yeah. So you got plenty of excuses. Yeah. But I'm just saying, if anxiety is one of the things that pushes you along in life, taking away that anxiety might be a bad thing. I wonder if it's on net a bad thing. I don't know. Because I've noticed a personality shift. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't want... I, I think I said the words, I don't want to roll the dice with my personality because I'm mostly happy with who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm happier now. Mm-hmm. And, I again, I can't be sure which way it came from, but... You know, if it, if it was related, which it very well could be, this is not an uncommonly reported experience. That's why we're seeing a lot of checks on the same list. It's, I don't know, if you're more laid back and happy, at least as long as it's not the obvious cost of like intelligence or something, something else that you really value. Well, yeah. Productivity. Um, productivity, yeah. yeah. And I don't know, maybe it did affect the intelligence a little bit. It's hard to say. You don't seem any dumber. Okay, well, that's so, good. So, and, and I, I guess I should say you don't seem any less smart. Um, <laughs> but. Because, I mean, so that's the thing is, you know, if somebody took a blow to the head and suddenly they can't remember how to get home from work anymore, but they're way happy. Like, they've lost something and everyone can see that, right? I don't so, know, because last night when we were talking with the guy, I brought up the whole thing about... Um, hey, wait, you... what is this? Uh, we were invited out to dinner um, with someone who was in town who was a fan of the podcast. And he was like, hey, I'm in town. Can I buy you dinner and just chat with you for a few hours? And we're like, sure, that'd be awesome. So uh, we did that. He mentioned one of the things that he appreciates is he knows there's some error in all his beliefs. And I asked, aren't you a little bit worried that maybe um, because of that, you can be swayed from beliefs that are important because people can exploit the fact that you hold that there's some error in your beliefs. And actually, I think it's a really good thing to always know there's some level of error in your beliefs. He was like, like what? So I brought up that some people kind of are racist and will use things like uh, the crime stats for the black population are much worse and that proves that black people are less civilized. And he was like, well, no, but that's because the the system penalizes being black more. And I was like, yeah, I totally agree. And I never pushed that because in part because, you know, I didn't want to be like giving the impression that I'm one of those alt-right assholes. But after we were driving away, I was like, I should have pushed him. So you don't believe that there's error in your thinking about whether or not the system is the problem. But on the other hand, I don't want to push him on that either because I also agree that the problem is with the laws and how they are enforced in large part. So you bring that up because you're worried that if you were... If I had been more mentally on top of things, I would have made that connection then because it didn't occur to me to point that out that there are some beliefs where you're like, I'm not willing to entertain error. Like, so what is your error interval that it's actually the system and not something inherent to... Sure. I think... God, I'm so fucking uncomfortable even saying those words. Well, but I think everyone knows that you're you're using this as an as a, an educational example. Okay. And if they don't, they're not listening closely enough. But I think I don't know what it's like being inside your head, obviously. But unless that's the kind of thing that you would ordinarily have not missed or something, and this is happening a lot, then it doesn't sound like usual loss. There, there were the fact that you're uncomfortable talking about it now, and you're not meeting a stranger, and you're not in public, um, where you could very easily be overheard making very compelling arguments for racism or something like all of those things 
were some in some level aware in your head and you might be missing it right so i know i would have definitely pushed him on it if in my uh late teens and early 20s but that was when i was much more confrontational you know yeah and nowadays i'm more like i want people to think good things about me and not think that oh maybe i'm a racist or something like back then i was like fuck yeah i'm an atheist eat me and you know i still believe that way but i'm no longer arguing about religion because that's gotten boring i guess yeah, yeah. it might just be that you're less confrontational now yeah I think that's that's probably that could be it. Okay. I mean, obviously, like I said, you know yourself best, but from the outside, I'm not well, I'm not noticing a difference. So, okay. I want to tear through the rest of this list real quick because right. I have some other Sorry. feedback. No, 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 you're totally fine. I just didn't want to um, go on too yeah. long. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't mind going on. I just figured <laughs> uh, it's more the overall length of the episode that I know you're editing that I want to keep short. So, <laughs> right. um, number four was access to an intense altered mental state that this person can make usually last around five to 10 minutes triggering this long generally long-term cures any stress anxiety or insecurities i've been struggling through recently with different levels of intensity required to trigger that mental state and i think what they're describing is just like kind of a mindfulness introspection they've they mentioned kind of spacey thinking earlier and um it sounds like feeling more than a mindfulness but feeling like i'm not the one thinking my thoughts i think that kind of when you when you take a mindfulness perspective and watch your thoughts form that's from like an inherently relaxing place. You can even be focusing on like physical pain or on like a, you know, extremely anxious, like heart race. And you just, when you sit back and you say, oh yeah, my heart's racing. I'm noticing that my heart's racing. That's a pretty neutral thought. When you're back there having that, it's less. Yeah, but they said triggering an intense, what was it? Intense altered mental state. That doesn't sound like the mindfulness sort of thing. That sounds more like being able to all of a sudden flip into... They'd have to describe it more because I suppose. that okay. can mean a lot of things. Also, um, not feeling like I'm the person thinking my thoughts, that could be kind of a mindfulness state of mind, or it could be disassociation, which is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it looks like at the end of the um, the last one where access to altered state of mind, I've written more extensively about this here, and they link to it. So. Okay. Oh, good, because um, I was going to say I wish I could yeah. <laughs> talk so to I, this person and get some clarification. I haven't read that that link yet, so maybe there's answers to all of our questions there number six shifts in belief about myself the way i work the things i'm curious about epistemics philosophy and ethics um these shifts are pretty severe and appear to be permanent i like these beliefs a lot better um (laughs) that's fortunate yeah Yeah. which is interesting i don't know if i had any radical shifts other than like being more laid back and happy but that might just come from like the slack of having a better whatever income or life situation in general it's hard to say um Altered mental reactions to alcohol. Getting drunk now feels slightly less psychedelic experience. It's interesting. Yeah. But again, you got to keep in mind, this person took a, a fuck ton. Which is, yeah. yeah. So my internal experience and feelings of thought process are now way more nonverbal. Whereas pre-acid, I, they used to be full of words. I don't know if I've noticed that at all. I Other think than being maybe more that's in tune part of what feelings. bothers me. I Maybe that is what I feel when I say like I've been more spacey. It's It's definitely a little bit less verbal than I used to be. And I mean, I know a lot of people who hate that verbal thing and I would sometimes get really irritated at it too. It's just like this chain of thought that just keeps going and going and going. It's like a train and you can't slow down. You can't stop thinking, you know? But on the other hand, that's also really useful if you're trying to make words as a living. So I, I kind of miss that a little bit. But on the other hand, dude, having that squirrel in your head just sucks. Yes. And also... Do you, do you just look at that? Um, racing thoughts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that squirrel might not be gone, too. It might just be I mean, it still tame. shows up every yeah, now and then. So. Yeah. That, like, comes back to my desire to just have an interface where I can kind of turn something on or off as needed. Yeah. 
If only there was a way to LSD and then to un-LSD. <laughs> right? And just flip that switch when you need it. Yeah, and this is probably a good time to remind that like these experiences all sound mostly positive for this person. Where we had mostly positive experiences and outcomes. That's not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. Not everyone likes it. This isn't an endorsement to try it. Use your best judgment. Do all your own homework. Yeah. Um, let's see. This one's kind of long, but I'll just read the bullet points. I'm spending more time on this than I meant to. Uh, number nine, the mental process I take to explain my own behaviors to myself has shifted drastically. They talk about their shift in their mental movements around their sense of agency. Uh, I'm going to just move past it. That's long, but it's interesting. Um, something to look at. I laugh way easier or way easier laughter. Um, and that's number 11. I skipped around. Number 10, existential masochism. Oh, I can actually sort of relate to this. Okay. This, this is a really bad way. I wouldn't have put it this way. The sense of pleasure and pain in a mental state, in a mental sense, have been seriously turned together. It's not that pain is any less painful or that pleasure is any less pleasurable. Probably the opposite, actually. It's that they more often coexist and they tend to coexist at greater extremes. Hmm. I, I don't know if I'd put it that way, but for myself, I've noticed that I'm able to, in an odd way, enjoy experiences that I don't, I don't want to repeat or I don't enjoy. Like eating food I don't like. Rather than, you know, just having this yuck reaction, I kind of... Ty- I, eating mindfully is actually a really interesting thing to try and do to try and maintain a mindfulness sense of all the sensations and stuff that are going on when you're eating everything from like the feeling of it in your mouth to the, how hard it is to chew and all that stuff and the taste and all that. What did I just eat in like the last couple of weeks that made me think of this? Oh, it was a green olive. I went out uh, to a, this super swanky speakeasy. Rachel took me for my birthday. It was awesome. And I was like, you know what? I haven't tried a green olive in a few years. I'll try them. And I'm chewing it. I'm like, I regret doing this, <laughs> but I'm, I, I was able to kind of just like backseat experience it yeah and i don't want to eat another one but it, it wasn't an unpleasant experience olives but I, but are I, the weirdest thing they're only good at burning man <laughs> i've always hated olives i had some at burning man because i was hungry and they were there and they were really fucking good well, hunger is a good spice home, too right i, I so. get but yes. there was something about it. also the fact that they were chilled made okay. a big difference but then i came home and i bought me like a can of olives and i was like this is shit what the hell happened it might have also just been better olives that's true. Maybe. I yeah. like black olives. I don't like green olives. Uh, I like all olives. They were black olives in both cases, but I've always disliked black olives. But it, it was just like I said, that little minor thing of like, okay, yeah, this sucks, but I can, I mean, I'm appreciating how it sucks. Yeah. Um, I can yeah. come at that too from a mindfulness perspective, having a, had panic disorder, where I read a lot of things about how to deal with panic disorder. And there was the suggestion that you try to really tap into curiosity. Um, you can reframe uh, anxiety as insight, as excitement. It doesn't always work, but I have had that work before. Or you can reframe the panic attack by like thinking about, well, let me th- try to think through the process of every reaction that I'm having right now. Okay, my heart is racing. Let me think about how that feels. Okay, my muscles have tensed up really tight. That's interesting. If you just you think of each uh, step and you're like, wow, my body's amazing that it's doing this. It's doing this because if a predator came by, it's forcing me to hold really still. So the predator doesn't see me. That's fascinating. And you can talk yourself through it that way. It's not necessarily turning it into enjoyment, but it's more uh, redirecting the negative thoughts into ones that are at least neutral. I like that. Or helpful. Cool. I have an off-air anecdote that's similar to that, but not. it's adjacent to that that I want to okay. talk about. We can do it now or later. It doesn't matter if you want to cut this out. Sure. I guess the, the real short version, I don't know if it has to be off-air or not, but uh, when Rachel and I were buying, well, we went and picked out all the, the components that we wanted and then got her an engagement ring. Mm-hmm. which she's this has to not go out well actually this will be out after yeah this will be out in a week and three days so does she listen to the podcast no oh okay then it's but, not that big a deal anyway. but still yeah, yeah you know the fewer people but 
So oh, yeah, it'll I'm, be after your. She's getting the ring on Sunday, but she doesn't know that. So this will come out after Sunday, so that's fine. Yeah. But we noticed that after we went and kind of like we, you know, long story short, we found the one, all the parts. They ordered it in like a bands and stones and whatever. And we both kind of like went out to lunch afterwards, and we're kind of like anxious, mm-hmm. and we're like we're not like nervous. And it's like no, it just feels like nervousness. This is just excitement, but it's the sensations are like the exact same. They are, you know, and so. It, in the moment where you're worried that you might be nervous, it's easy to imagine that nervousness is what's going on there. But we talked about it and we were like, you know, described how we're feeling. And so it was that, it was that sense of being aware of how you're feeling and being able to analyze it on that level. It was just similar, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much redirecting or, or realigning how you're looking at it. But it was just recognizing that two sensations can be tied to very different emotions that people dislike or like, right? People like being excited, but they hate being nervous. It's a lot of the same, like, neural pathways and a lot of the same physical sensations, which is interesting. Like, uh, a racing heartbeat can be excitement, or mm-hmm. um, serotonin and dopamine can cause... Serotonin can cause you to be aggressive, or it can cause you to be happy. Didn't realize it could cause you to be aggressive. I think so, unless I'm thinking of no, a I different mean, neurotransmitter. It's very well me. I, I don't know shit about serotonin. All I know is that elephants have oxytocin releases when they see humans, oh. which we have oxytocin releases when we see puppies. Mm-hmm. And so it means that elephants think that we're cute. And that, that's a really cute <laughs> thought for me to have. Okay. And if they think it's cute that I think it's cute that they, that I, they, that they think we're cute, right. then we get this awesome feedback cycle and we're just rolling So your, your oxytocin is releasing right now when you think about elephants thinking humans are cute. That's right. <laughs> all right. Aww. Was that all of them? Yes. Okay. Um, but like I said, last takeaway that drugs are hazardous. Everyone should be educated to the extent that they're comfortable with. And if you do decide to ever try anything, try to get it from somebody you trust, do it in a safe and comfortable setting with people that you're relaxed around. In that same vein, uh, Scott Alexander pointed out that some people have permanent um, reactions to hallucinogens. He said, uh, I think it was like one, one to 2% of people who take them have some sort of permanent hallucination effect afterwards, which is like, Seems like a lot. That seems like a lot. I feel like yeah. I'd have heard about that in my homework, but I'll I, take his word for it. No, I, I think he was confused by it too. We we personally know someone who has permanent hallucinations. Well, and I mean, well, a we fair, don't know we don't know if they had that before they had lots of drugs. Maybe they I can't remember if they said that it caused it. And I think it started with it. He took an amount of acid that is ungodly large, and if if it was possible to have a lethal overdose of acid, he would have lethally overdosed. So. Your mileage will almost certainly vary. Yeah. So be careful with drugs, kids. Drugs are bad, okay? And, and to be clear, I think I've done a total of 400 micrograms in the last year and a half. You did 400 micrograms at a time period greater than the statute of limitations for being prosecuted for that. I'm the kind of person who would lie about taking drugs for the social esteem that it gives me. <laughs> so if you're, the NSA, if you're the NSA listening to this, that's that's what's happening here. Cool. All right. Sorry. That, t- that took a lot longer than I meant for it to. But I thought it was, I thought it was interesting because this is something that I've, I look back on once in a while and think about because... My personality is a little different. My life's different. All uh-huh. that stuff. And, and you're like, how much of that was LSD and how much was it was other things? And I'm suspecting very little of it was, but it, it, I think it's likely that some of it could have been. So yeah. that's why I wanted to bring that up. What um, episode was that in response to? I think 36. Let me double check the email. Yep. 36, the other kind of drugs. Okay. I think the one we had before that, uh, nootropics. Yeah. Yeah. Episode 35 was nootropics. I have one listener feedback. Actually, I have two listener feedbacks, but the other, the second one is really long, so I'm going to wait for that one until next week. I have a really short listener feedback from Simula Crumpet, which says, Inyash, your point about natural speed limits seems odd to me, as people construct roads. Often the government, as it happens. 
Um, and before I continue reading the rest of the comment, yes, uh, people construct roads, but the concept of a natural speed limit is like, I, I actually know a civil engineer who I think is retired now. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask her again. Uh, but uh, roads are, are, have, are recognized to have a quote unquote natural speed limit, which is the limit that drivers want to drive on a road based on how it's constructed. Roads that are wider, that have large shoulders, that are straight that aren't on an incline all tend to lend themselves to being driven on faster. Multiple lanes helps. If there's like a something solid in the median that you can not drive over, that also helps. So all these things are things that give roads a certain natural speed limit that feels the right speed to drive on a road on. That this is a very well-known thing in, in civil engineering. And that is why I get really annoyed when there's a road that it is very obvious everyone would be driving 40 to 45 on this and the speed limit is set to something like 30 so that the cops can just sit there and write tickets. I, I'm like, fuck you, don't do that. There's a natural speed limit. And honestly, there used to not be defined speed limits on roads, you know? People would just drive on what was the safe limit and uh, cops would sometimes patrol roads. And if someone was driving obviously too fast and recklessly, they would pull them over. Because the cop knows what the safe speed limit on road is too. And this also changes with technology. As cars get better and safer and, uh, you know, can hug the road better, can brake better, people take that into account. And so the natural speed limit goes up. Uh, but that also leads to things like cops saying, oh, I pulled you over because you were driving at too fast of a speed, in my opinion, when it's someone they don't like. Right. It is a racial minority or it is someone specifically they know, but it, it was used as a tool for oppression. And now, now having numbers, they can't say they were driving too fast. They were driving 26 and a 25, unless they're going to ticket everybody that same way, right? Right. So, so, I mean, that kind of eliminated that. But then the cops just found other reasons to pull over black people. Totally. Yeah. So The uh, natural speed limit is also something that they're trying to teach self-driving cars. It's been one of the frustration points because they started out trying to teach self-driving cars what the actual rules of the road said and then found out that, like psychologically nobody drives like that yeah the, the the textbook rules of the road that's actually really interesting i hadn't thought about that but that's obviously got to be the case right if you're going 75 in the interstate and everyone else is doing 85 you're going to be a dangerous risk so that that's obviously true but it didn't occur to me what legal hoops you'd have to jump through to say look we're gonna have the car speed but only when everyone else is speeding right. i guess i guess it all has to come down to the numbers and say look my cars don't crash that was what uh what elon said a couple times during the podcast he, he did with uh, Joe Rogan, where Rogan had asked if he'd seen that video of the guy falling like asleep, you know, snoring at the wheel mm -hmm. in traffic. And he was like, I've seen it. it. The cars don't let you do that anymore. We put out an update. Uh, now, if you don't touch the wheel for a while, it slows down, honks at you and pulls you over to the side of the road. <laughs> so, oh, uh, wow. But he, oh, it, I but, wish I could afford a Tesla. <laughs> I know. But then he had said, hey, you know, at the very least... He didn't crash. Our cars, our cars don't crash. Other cars crash. Ours yeah. don't crash. He just he, he has this way of kind of punctuating his little points like that over and over. So, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, continuing the comment, it seems like the winding side road and the speed limit actually constrain your behavior in similar ways. And no, the winding side road constrains it, you know, much more naturally. Where the speed limit is an artificial limiter is my my counter to this. Anyways. Uh, Simulac Crumpet asks, if hypothetically the government removed all speed limits but reconstructed the roads so driving speeds didn't change, would you prefer this? Yes! They have done that. Oh god, yes! They've experimented with that. Oh, have they? They've taken away like stop signs, uh, street lights, and uh, uh, speed limits, and people do naturally drive safer than they would otherwise. Well, oftentimes, even in really complicated intersections, because people autopilot 
But uh, when they're forced to pay attention, look around, see if there's pedestrians or actually communicate with other drivers, then they are able to drive more safely, yeah. get in less accidents. I think that would actually probably slow down the natural flow of traffic quite a bit because one of the things that green lights and red lights let us do is streamline that. You don't have to pay as much attention and you can go faster through these intersections. Mm-hmm. But um, but yes, I, I do think that if you want a road to be a 35 mile per hour road, you engineer it to be a 35 mile per hour road. That's why suburbs, people who live in the suburbs, or at least when I was a kid, I asked in the suburbs, why the fuck are these streets so windy? They go nowhere like, what, what is the purpose of this? The purpose is literally to make people slow down and to not use the streets as shortcuts because you just, you don't do that on those sorts of streets. Huh. That's exactly how I get to work. I take exclusively back roads other than this, like, quarter mile stretch. Um, but I can't go 40 on those. I do go, like, 30. So, yeah, um, yeah that... that uh, I mean, in your case, it's faster because the main roads are so clogged up that right. going thirty on back roads is better than being on the main road. And I'm not the fr- I'm not the only person. The way I discovered the 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 rest of this back route was I saw it in my rearview mirror, like because I just moved. I don't know in May, mm-hmm. and I was taking this new way. I was trying to find the you know save a minute on my short commute to the the train stop, and I saw three or four cars in my rearview mirror turned down this side street that I'd only barely seen before, and I'm like. They can't all be just live down there at eight in the morning. Where are they all going? Yeah. So I went that way the next day, and it led to where I usually la- looped back around to get to. Nice. But yeah, I guess speed bumps are like another way to get around that, which mm-hmm. is like, yeah, the road's straight. You could totally pedal to the metal of this and get up to eighty before you've got to turn. But we're gonna put these st- speed bumps to stop you, lest you destroy your car. Yeah. So, although I've heard, and I don't know if I've I've never verified this, that speed bumps cost more lives than they save. That sounds like something that's too easy to say, but I think the idea that emergency vehicles can't barrel down the street towards your house is Uh, the is the argument mm -hmm. that I heard. But this sounds super made up. Now that that sounds too simplistic. Yeah, it seems like that wouldn't that wouldn't come into play very often. How often are emergency vehicles coming down your specific side street to save you? And how do you measure how many lives they've saved? Was was it saving lives because uh, it was like making the emergency vehicles arrive more slowly? I think that's what was costing lives. And then the, lives. the saving life aspect was like people are speeding less and hitting fewer people. Now that I say that out loud, I'm actually glad I did because that sounds like a totally, I'm guessing that's a very wrong soundbite that I heard once and committed to memory and now I can throw out as obvious garbage. Right. So well, if anyone has any real numbers on that, I'm curious. But All right, we should wrap this up because it is over two hours and I'm going to have a lot of editing to do. This is Inuyasha interjecting after the fact. We forgot to mention in the episode what the next two sequences posts are. In two weeks, we will discuss the proper use of humility and the modesty argument. Links to both posts will be included with this episode. You can get them, as always, at our website, thebayesianconspiracy.com. Before we go, I would like to thank our Patreon supporter. We want to thank all our Patreon supporters, actually. Um, in the last, Over the last two episodes, we have gotten like just a flood of support recently. And I mean, it's little amounts but just seeing all these people like wanting to support us and being like hey we like your thing has really made me feel happy over the past few weeks because there was a long stretch of period where we just didn't get new people and now we just got what i call a flood i think it was like three from each episode of the past two episodes that felt like a lot to me you know and it just made me feel much happier yeah i get the email notifications on my phone and i see them and it brightens my day and it 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 does mean i don't know how to i say this every time and i feel awkward saying because it's like thanks for the money and it is but like at the same time it it says something and it makes me feel odd in a way that you'll have to carefully edit that people care about this enough to throw some money at it so um Mm. yeah like i said one of these days we'll we'll put this towards i think i would definitely benefit from a mic that i could walk around using 
Huh. Um, I know that they make some nice Bluetooth ones that you know have a mic that attaches because I don't sit still very well, as you might have noticed over right, the last right. couple oh, of years. Oh, I think much better when I'm on my feet. Yeah, same. Yeah. I, when I'm on the phone, I pace maybe all the should, time. Maybe we should get both of you guys like some microphones. Yeah, get some of those pacing ones. I've got one at work that I use that works really well. I haven't recorded on it, so I don't know if it comes out really well, but it works great for phone calls at work. I might just bring home and use that once in a while. The thing is, it doesn't come with a case, and it's $300, and I don't want to break it, but I'll find oh, some some wow. careful way to get this thing home. As a cheaper option, we could get those ridiculous bouncy balls. Bouncy balls? The, the ones, ones that, that you sit, sit in, they're supposedly orthopedic. Oh, <laughs> You're shaking your head, okay. Steven. <laughs> no, I, I, I just poured it. I need to be up moving my feet, but I can't move my body in a, in a bouncy ball. That's true, and those are 15 bucks, so... I had one of those once. What did I do with it? I don't know. Uh, my former coworker is never going to listen to this, but we all got bouncy balls at one point, like kind of just to be like sarcastic. But uh, he like fell off the bouncy ball and injured himself and put a hole in the wall. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then I've read a bunch of things about how they're not actually like orthopedic, and I don't know. There's a lot of injuries related to them. <laughs> Holy shit! There's only one person at my office who uses them on the floor of about a hundred people. And uh, I don't know them that well, so I won't point out like, hey, this is a stupid idea. But if they were on my team, I'd point that out. So I also want to point out that in the last episode, we talked about uh, Petrov Day. And we had a uh, listener who wanted to remain anonymous uh, send in a cool little picture that they made. Yeah, we and should post oh, I that, saw too. that. It's, on, it's on the episode description now. Cool. So if you look at the description for last episode, it's it shows up there. I also made the picture for this week's or this month's meetup on Facebook. But um, we could post it on this episode, too. Yeah, but, let's do that. Yeah, but but definitely check it out. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Patreon supporter we want to specifically thank this week is Lyric Lee. Lyric Lee, big shout out, big fan. Yeah, you're, you're an awesome, awesome person. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Lyric. The, Lyric the, is the person we know personally. Yeah, so the, yeah. This, this is more more endearing sentiment to them because I happen to know who they are. So yeah. high five, you rock. All right. And also, thank you, Jess, for coming in uh, and being on mic with us today. I know this is, you know, a lot of time out of your day and, and not exactly the easiest thing to do. So No, it's uh, super fun. And I think it's important. Like, I have terrible stage fright slash social anxiety. And I'm trying to push myself into doing more things that will uh, give me exposure therapy. Shit, I well, would not have This known. has been really, like, fun the two times that I'm doing it. And I'd like to be on again. Awesome. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, totally. And if this... If the externality of you trying to better yourself is you accidentally making the show awesome, then hey, we'll take <laughs> it. So yeah, cool. All right, thanks everybody, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Boom. Bye bye.